Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Exactly 14 minutes left. I'm afraid the old place is going up. Have you heard about Amsterdam? Yeah, some mistake. Ooh, 28 square miles of white ash. The civilization's about to blow itself apart. Greetings, programs. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Everybody's been so busy watching the bleeding commercials that nobody noticed. Also with us this week is our old friend, Mr. Eric Cohen. Really glad to be here. Bring the storm that is Stormbringer. This week we are looking at the 1973 sci-fi flick, The Final Program, also known as The Last Days of Man on Earth. The film stars John Finch as Jerry Cornelius, an eternal champion. The film was written and directed by Robert Feust, Robert Feust, and based on a book by Michael Moorcock. It's a story of deception, intrigue, and the end of the world, the coming of a messiah, so many things. There's a lot of stuff packed into this movie. So, Eric, as our guest this week, when was the first time you saw the final program and or The Last Days of Man on Earth? And what did you think? I heard about the movie for the longest time. I, I was, I, I'm a Michael Moorcock fan. One of the first books I read written by him was actually The Final Program. And I heard there was this movie version of it. I had, had been dying to see it for the longest time tell you honestly i can't remember how i got to see it the first time i think i had a vhs copy somehow 
I remember watching it and and thinking, huh. I, I remember thinking it was a pretty crazy film in itself. I didn't realize until I saw it the first time that Robert... Now, I've heard his name pronounced different ways. Fust and Foyest are the two different ways I've heard it pronounced, and I've never gotten it, I've never gotten a straight answer to how to actually pronounce his name. So I guess we'll just go with Fust, right? For the, for, Works for me. Right? So anyway, so... Because I, I was a fan of, you know, the Fives movies. Bonneville Dr. Fives, right? And I would reckon some episodes of The Avengers. I was a fan of that TV series. And I gotta say, I was like, wow, this, this movie's crazy. It's actually very enjoyable. It's not very faithful, but I'm sort of okay with that. And that was the first time I saw it, and I told I, I recommended it to a few friends, and, and they were like, oh, dude, that, that film was crazy. I, I think I like it. I'm not sure if I do. And, and I've revisited a couple times since then, and my, it's an interesting film because my opinion doesn't really change on it. I know it's flawed. I know it's, it's, it's got some weird stuff going on that just doesn't make sense. I'm not talking about it in a good way, but I just find it to be an endlessly entertaining movie. Rob, when was the first time you saw it? Uh, this past week. <laughs> I didn't know it existed. Um, and as I watched it, maybe it was the design. Maybe it was the British accents. Maybe it was the fact that the guy who plays the writer in A Clockwork Orange, yeah, it just really had this feel of that era of film and kind of reminded me a little bit of Clockwork Orange, at least in design. Uh, I don't think that, you know, it holds any of the same uh, ideas or anything like that. But I was just like, wow, I'm like, this kind of feels of that same era. It does have a lot going on. I agree with Eric that at times it uh, doesn't quite hit for what it reaches for, but I did find it really interesting in this kind of bizarre mix of modern and older sci-fi tropes in there as well. I saw this one probably when I was 17, maybe. I remember renting it at the Blockbuster where I eventually worked about like six years later. I gotta say, not a big fan. I came in to Moorcock via Elric at the End of Time, which was like the unofficial Elric book. Uh, <laughs> like, even if you go out and you look on Goodreads at all the Elric books, like, they all have this very distinct artwork to it. And then there's Elric at the end of time, like this ugly stepchild with this completely different cover. And it was kind of like a bunch of Elric stories just thrown together into this mishmash thing. But that was my introduction to. Moorcock. And I just want to digress for just a second here to talk about what it was like. You know, you guys are just a few years younger than me. I don't remember how old you are, Eric. You're like, what? Are you even 40? Oh, you're so kind. (laughs) You're so kind. I'm sure I'm older than you are. Okay. I just wanted to, to talk about how tough it used to be to know anything about books. Like, uh-huh. we've talked on the show before about, you know, the pre-IMDB days, even before there were things like the Golden Movie Retriever books, and you just had, like, the the Malton books, the Ebert books, and maybe, like, the big book of all knowledge at the video store. Mm-hmm. But for me, there wasn't such a thing when it came to book books. So the only thing I had to go off of after I read this book and I was just like, oh, my God, this was so good. I want to read more of this stuff was that that paltry little thing in the front of the book, the front of the paperback that said other books by Michael Moorcock. 
And if that wasn't something that was being published by that particular publisher, of course, they're not going to list it on there. So if Michael Moorcock had multiple publishers over multiple years, good luck. And the only thing you could do was haunt bookstores, be they B. Dalton or Walden Books, you know, this is pre-Borders, pre-Barnes & Noble kind of stuff, or go to the used bookstore and just check out those shelves every single time and maybe you would find something different. And this was a point in Moorcock's career where he yeah, he's been creating for tons of years. I mean, the guy's been just a non-stop writing machine but, you know, good luck if you can't find like the one book that has you know oh here's the count brass sagas listed okay now i know there are these titles but then again how are you going to get them you know it was nearly impossible to find what you were looking for when it came to books i don't know if that was your guys's experience or not similar experience i mean when it comes to something like the final program it's it's uh it's kind of weird how that the, the gateway I guess the gateway for me to the final program was Buckaroo Bonsai, right? Because I saw Buckaroo Bonsai and someone told me, oh, you know, it was such a ripoff off of Jerry Cornelius. Yeah, Buckaroo Bonsai is kind of a Jerry Cornelius type. I was like, oh, interesting. Well, who created Jerry Cornelius? Michael Moorcock. It's like, really? No shit. I read, you know, one of the Elric books. So I went to find, I, I initially found the book somehow. Uh, the, which was the final program, read it. And I was like, eh, it's not really like uh, Buck Rubansai, but okay. <laughs> but but um, it's funny. It's like I have like such a non-memory of how I managed to get my first final program book because l- looking for these books now, it's almost impossible. I mean, thank God we have the internet. You have to go on Amazon.com or eBay to find a used copy. But I don't know if the if the Cornelius books are currently in print right now. Yeah, it's tough. And even when I was looking up books for the show, I was like, I know that I own these books. Like I have a Rubbermaid container just filled with Michael Moorcock books that I, you know, had all through high school and into college. And I was like, I know that I have this, but I want to see if there are more Jerry Cornelius stories out there because I kind of stopped reading Moorcock around. I don't know. Maybe I was like. 24 25 something like that and i think that i just kind of tapped out of new stuff for me to read there came a point where i get to college and i'm at new used bookstores and i'm not seeing anything different and i wasn't able to find new stuff so it wasn't until like 10 years after that where i was like i gotta check out and see if this michael moorcock guy has written anything else and yes he definitely had well i I find what's really interesting about the cornelius saga so to speak right i think i there's a final program there's cure for cancer there's the english assassin and i forgot what the fourth book is called the condition of music okay and I, i think it's interesting that they are i mean yes you know i guess we should explain to the to to the listeners just in case they, they don't know about this, but, you know, Moorcock had this concept called the internal champion. And so we had all these different stories taking place in different times and realities. But but the main protagonists in each story are actually supposed to be the one same character, like like uh, Jerry Cornelius is supposed to be Elric. Right. But another alternate reality version of him kind of thing. Uh, but if you read these not knowing that. It's like reading like a Jerry Cornelius book. It's kind of like reading a Robert Anton Wilson adventure or something written by Thomas Pynchon or something like that. Whereas, whereas the Elric books 
are rather subversive takes on, on sword and sorcery, but they're still firmly and grounded in that sort of fantasy kind of uh, of fiction. Whereas the Cornelius books are like kind of all over the place. In fact, the the, the each successive novel isn't really a sequel. They're just alternate reality takes on the same character and his side characters. Sometimes a character that's a female in one novel turns out becomes a, fem- a male in another. A uh, character dies in one novel, is alive in the next. There's just no continuity between the books. Which is funny because that's really kind of how I read Moorcock in general because I would be there reading an Elric book and I would find a Coram book or, you know, uh, um, Count Brass book, or even something that wasn't part of, you know, the canon. You know, I would find Behold the Man, or, you know, the what was it, the Ice Schooner, or some of these books, and I was just like, okay, so I came to these characters all mixed up and not knowing which character came first kind of thing, because, yeah, there are tons of nods from one novel to another. Like, at one point, you know, there is a convergence of a lot of these characters. I can't remember which Elric book it was, but it was just like, okay, you know, okay, here's Count Brass, here's Corum, here's Jerry Cornelius, all these guys. And Jerry Cornelius, with his JC moniker, the AKA Jesus Christ, even he had all of these different names through these different books. Sometimes they would kind of sound like Jerry Cornelius, and other times they'd be these different interpretations of it. And then what makes it even more confusing is not every Jerry Cornelius story is written by Michael Murdoch. He kind of gave this character to the universe and said, go ahead, use them if you want to. So there are tons of Cornelius stories out there that he didn't pen. I think it's one of the first cases of like open source literature. Yeah, where he just made it copyright free. Yeah, which is really strange now, especially when you think about things like, you know, fan fiction and how that kind of skirts the line of copyright and everything and just the, you can get off into weird weird tangents when it comes to how certain characters can be used in other works of literature. And or other forms of media, really, because there are comic books where a Cornelius-like character shows up. You know, we, when we talk to Mr. Moorcock later on, he talks about how Cornelius made an appearance in one of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen books by Alan Moore. So it's yeah, it's just uh, kind of strange how how muddied the waters are. But I guess taking us back to the film. So you say that this is not a very faithful adaptation. Well, it's a weird film in that there are aspects of it that are faithful, and there are aspects right. of it that just it's one of the, it's a frustrating film in the sense that and I'm not one of those guys that feels like a good adaptation has to be faithful, right? Uh, in fact, sometimes I think if you're too faithful to a source, it won't necessarily translate into a good movie. But you watch something like the final program after you've read the book, and you wonder why. Okay, well, if you went in this direction. You know, where, 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 where you, know, you have this post-apocalyptic scenario where they're drinking toxic water or cocktails made out of toxic waste, you know, stuff like that. Then why didn't you, spoiler, spoil it, end it the way it ended in the novel with this, like, whole new messiah type? Instead, why did, why did you end it with this dumb punchline, you know? Um, it's just, like, weird choices. And, and we've all heard the stories about how Moorcock did not get along with the director at all. He didn't agree with his choices, especially didn't agree with, with the choice of using jazz as a soundtrack when he wanted Hawkwind, the former uh, iteration of Motorhead, to do the soundtrack instead. And, and although I think Moorcock is a little unfair, the fused, just a little bit, but 
yeah, there's just like weird choices on the director's part. I don't know if that, that was attributed to the budget because it was done on a really low budget, which is the other thing that blows my mind about this movie because there's so much creatively, creativity, so much energy put into the set design and just the overall conceptual look of certain shots and stuff. Fuse was a talented director and scene, you know, set designer who knew how to stretch a budget. And it shows in this film, I personally think. So before we get too far astray, I definitely want to touch on the plot of this film. And I'll say that there's not there's what too much going on. <laughs> yeah, there's too much going on and there's not enough stuff going on. Um, it, sometimes it feels like the whole movie is a little backwards as far as the way that it is structured. Because it begins with the death of Jerry Cornelius's dad. We don't necessarily see that death. We see the funeral afterwards. And that introduces us to this theme song that we hear ad nauseum throughout the rest of the film. I will say I like the theme song, but they they really get their money's worth when it comes to this song. Yeah, that sort of Fellini-esque circus almost kind of exactly. soundtrack. Yeah. We really get a lot of introductions to characters, but only through dialogue, which to me is usually a mistake. So we get a lot of discussion of this character, Frank, and another character, Catherine. And eventually we find out that Frank and Catherine are Jerry's siblings. And Frank has Catherine drugged up and in the old Cornelius estate, and Jerry gets approached by these people, these three men and a woman who want the secrets of the Cornelius estate. So they basically convince Jerry to break into his own house and rescue his sister. He wants to rescue his sister. They want this microfilm, you know, the perennial um, <laughs> MacGuffin of so many movies. They want this microfilm from his brother Frank and what kind of uh, stirs things up a little bit is that the house is protected by all of these absolutely bizarre traps and uh, there's there's music that will deafen you there's um, in the book there's like a whole thing about LSD and they're like dosing everybody I'm trying to remember there's like uh, a couple others there's like lights that will uh, will kind of paralyze you there and there's a, a sword at one point you you have to make checkmate on this door and then the sword comes out and stabs a guy it's just it's kind of nutty it's really kind of crazy but yeah to your point and to your point rob the the look of it like especially in this house some of these sets are just remarkable yeah it, it's it's kind of like a willy wonka for adults not that Willy Wonka isn't for adults, but I mean, it's it's like an LSD take on Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Where kind of, I always like viewed Jerry Cornelius' house as sort of like this tesseract or kind of like Doctor Who's TARDIS, you know, smaller on the outside, but much bigger on the inside kind of thing. Michael Moorcock wrote a Doctor Who novel that featured Jerry Cornelius in it, by the way, but there you go. But uh, that's why I guess I like the film, because the, the set design and the sheer imagination kind of overrides all the weird attempts at trying to be countercultural and cool. You could try, they're trying really hard to be cool, but they just don't know how to connect it. 
Rob, were you reminded of Clockwork Orange when it came to the pinball scene, especially? <laughs> the pinball scene's interesting, but I, I think what's funny, you were talking about trying to tap in and be cool, is when the guy shows up, I thought to myself, oh man, it's Mark Bolin. Because <laughs> he looks exactly like Mark Bolin of T-Rex, who would have been, I guess, big in Britain in 1972-73. So, like, the hair and the styling and all that stuff. I mean, he's got sort of this bizarro kind of um, mod-slash-James-Bond kind of look going on, where he's, like, lounging around in tuxedos, kind of, but he's got, like, these frilly shirts at the same time. And, um, yeah, it's just it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting idea. It got some flack because they thought that John Finch, when he initially appears as Jerry, Jerry Cornelius, looked too masculine. He looked too much like, you know, Jim Morrison when he should have looked like Ziggy Stardust. He's pretty much the thin white Duke here. However, I, I think John Finch is fantastic in it. And apparently he was very good friends with Michael Moorcock uh, and was a fan of the Jerry Cornelius stories. So he like was like totally psyched to play this part. I thought Finch was wonderful, though there are times where he reminds me a lot of Oliver Reed. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's the voice or the way that he carries himself or something, but yeah, there were times where I was just like, oh, wow, it would be pretty cool if like Oliver Reed ended up being Frank. Because, again, we're hearing about Frank all the freaking time, and it takes forever for us to finally see him. And then when he shows up, the actor who plays him, I know that I've seen Derek O'Connor and a lot of other things, and he's had a huge filmography. I think he's still making stuff today. But at first, when I first glanced at him, I was like, holy shit, it's David Warner. But unfortunately, that was not the case. I was thrilled, though, going back to that uh, pinball uh, sequence. This is right before the robbery. Jerry goes in and he's looking for um, some napalm and he approaches this one guy shades for it. And that's uh, Ronald Lacey is playing shades. Ronald Lacey. As soon as I see him, I'm like, Oh, I know this guy. Where do I know this guy? And it takes just a second for him to finally start talking. And once he does, I'm like, Oh, it's Toth from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I love that little like exchange between him and uh, John Finch. Hello, Shades. Mr. Jerry Cornelius, a legend in his own lifetime. Ta-da. How's the assassination business? Still up there at number one. Two presidents and one queen. How's that for cult last? Get away. What about napalm? Napalm. You buying or selling? Asking. Who wants it? You? Uh huh. Give me a couple of days. Too long. Oh, shit, Jerry, come on. No, tomorrow. Tomorrow is Sunday. So, all the shops are shut. Shit. There was this weird cameo, too. I guess I almost got too far ahead of myself. Before the robbery, it takes a while for this robbery to happen. Before the robbery, we also get this bizarro cameo from Sterling Hayden <laughs> as Major Wrongway Lindbergh. It's yeah. almost like he's playing uh, a countercultural take on a character he played in Strange Love. Yeah, it was like Hippie Ripper with his onk that he's wearing and the cigar and all that stuff. Yeah. He reminded me a lot of his character, the the Sterling Hayden character in Winter Kills. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Wow, that's a good call. 
But this was a weird period in Sterling Hayden's life where he was doing a lot of these like just smaller roles. I mean, it couldn't have taken him more than a day to do the shooting for the final program. But he makes an impression, and unfortunately, he never comes back. I was really hoping that we would get a little bit more of his character. But that's it. Just one scene, and he's out of there. Yeah, you wonder with the budget being as low as it was, maybe that's all they could afford him for. And the whole scene in there where you have sort of the pinball thing and then the casino with the slot machines and you have the nuns and the hitman, as I called him, the guy who was uh, Shade's character, who he was having the conversation with the pinball and their psychics and all this using the slot machines. Kind of, uh, of course, here we go. I'm going to bring up uh, Bunuel, so take a drink. There's a couple of Bunuel films where he has members of the clergy uh, playing like poker and things like that. So it's uh, so I kind of had a little laugh at the idea of nuns putting coins into slot machines. So is it a case of Boonwell mixed with Fellini, do we think? Maybe. I, I do think there's definitely some surrealism in there. I also think uh, beyond the design, there's also some interesting shot selection. Just in sort of the two viewings that I had of it, I noticed that he has a lot of people looking into the lens at times. And there's also a lot of driver point of view shots, either in a car or in like a helicopter or in a plane, at least in the first half of the film. But you know what? I mean, yeah, you could like reference Kubrick. You could reference uh, Bunel. You could reference Fellini, whatever. But a lot of that is so signature Robert Fust. Like, like, if you see the Fives movies, you, you recognize that style. He, that same kind of approach he takes to Final Program, you see in the Fives movies. You even see it in his work with the Avengers, the TV series. Not to be confused with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Avengers. He had this distinct style. I would say that the only film I've seen him do that didn't have that style might have been his take on Wuthering Heights, which is an incredibly boring movie. And the other film I could think of that, that doesn't really have that signature style of his is actually kind of good as the original version of and soon the darkness which was remade i think about like five or six years ago uh, outside of that like most of his films had that kind of thing going on and and this film i mean it was an absolute failure they, they sent it out on a double bill with some sort of uh, asian kung fu flick oh cleopatra wong yeah or something like that and it just just completely bombed and i think that he never uh, recover from that. I think the film he did after that was Devil's Reign. Yeah, and it just like went downhill from there. He made like you know a made-for-TV sequel to The Stepford Wives, and that was it. I think and poor guy because he had so much. I mean, you could see it. He had so much talent. Well, so much of the final program just does feel kind of thrown together, or like I say, more references through dialogue than seeing we're, we're you know it's the old um axiom about screenwriting you show you don't tell and they do show at one point there's a beautiful shot of jerry coming up to trafalgar square and all these wrecked cars all over the place yeah it's awesome it's a great shot and then like shortly thereafter when he's talking to sterling hayden's character he makes references to Amsterdam being wiped out, turned to ash, and there's a, a line about you know no more Vatican. And, but again, these are lines about this stuff. We're not necessarily seeing it. And other than that shot of the cars, we're not necessarily seeing this as kind of a post-apocalyptic type world. So it's kind of this weird, like, are we in the post-apocalypse? Are we not? What happened? And it's, I almost like 
that they're not handing it to us on a silver platter. You know, it's that thing that I like about Star Wars where we don't have to know what happened in the past. We just have this rich backstory. But there are times in the final program where I just feel frustrated because it's like, it feels like the world is different, but I'm not quite getting a bead on it. You know, it's like there is that world of a clockwork orange where things have definitely changed, but we don't necessarily need to know the extent of it. The way that they kind of take us into a clockwork orange, you know, it's a nice gradual thing other than, you know, starting us off at the Maloka milk bar, which really kind of sets a stage. Whereas with the final program, starting us off in this kind of barren wasteland with these guys, you know, bringing these uh, beams together and burning Jerry's father and everything doesn't necessarily give us that same impact of, you know, the Corova milk bar type set. Though I will say to both of your guys' points that the sets in Final Program definitely have some very striking stuff. And when they're in Jerry's house and running through those rooms, which are probably just big, you know, things of, of um fabric or whatever and they're running through there and everything is colored or they turn on the solarization filter it's actually really effective yeah i I, it's 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 weird too because everything you describe about the movie what, what would be the movie's flaws that's the book yeah you know but the weird thing is it's like i i wrote about this movie a few months ago for for the website i i contribute to that that the cinephiles is a part of where you wish that it's you feel like the people that made the film misunderstood what the gist of the Jerry Cornelius books are about and just went for the cool stuff, what they thought was hip and cool, what the kids would want to see kind of thing. And fortunately, what they took was just imaginative enough, but they left out all the connective tissue that, that brought it meaning. You know, the, the, the books were firmly about that they, they were sort of uh, metaphorical takes on present day society, how we, we've kind of become desensitized to things like war and how technology's progressed and how we think, think everything's going to be OK as a result of that. And how in some in a lot of ways, Michael Moorcock predicted our propensity for being too PC eventually, which is why he would have his character, Jerry Cornelius, intentionally walk around an actual animal pelts and fur coats to sort of flaunt that in front of people who were against, you know, animal cruelty and stuff like that. And you don't have any of that in this movie. What you have is a lot of weird, surreal, nonsensical kind of silly stuff. It's kind of like an episode of the Avengers. That that's, that's, that's what the final program is like. If you see any of the episodes that uh, Robert Fuse directed, which were very imaginative and a lot of fun, but they work because you're only watching half an hour of it, not a full-length film. And I will say the film is very episodic. I yeah. mean, we've talked about the heist, and the heist is really, you know, when it comes down to it, that's the bulk of, like, the first act, is getting this this heist through and everything, and setting us up for the second part of it. The end of the first act, the end of this heist, we've got Frank escaping, so it's basically continued next week kind of a thing. We've got Jerry has mistakenly killed his sister, Catherine, who, again, very 
seen or very talked about and not necessarily seen. And that is Sarah Douglas, who we all know from the Superman films and also from Solar Babies. And we'll hear from her in a little bit here. And we've got Jerry, who is near death because he's been shot by one of these needle guns. And these needle guns are kind of cool. These like sci-fi type weapons that we have here, though they don't necessarily explain too much about them. Again, might be good, might not be good. So yeah, the end of that, it's very much like same back time, same back channel. We'll come back and rejoin the adventures of Jerry Cornelius right after these messages. But, you know, then we go right into it. But we already have some characters set up. You know, the, uh, we've got the three guys who were helping, kind of, who were kind of more standing around when it came to this heist and getting themselves into trouble. But mostly we have Ms. Brunner, who's played by Jenny Runnaker, who is a really fascinating character and who's really kind of the opposite of Jerry Cornelius. Though I will say she wears tons of furs when it comes to this and she is very much she seems to be fitting the bill of jerry cornelius better than jerry cornelius is at times you know why that is jenny ronacre miss bruner is stormbringer to jerry cornelius is elric oh nice so there you go folks that's the connection that's a totally geeky thing that most people will not get that are listening to this show. Well, think about it. She <laughs> consumes people much like she does. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for people that don't know who Stormbringer, what Stormbringer is, Stormbringer is the sword that Elric, uh, Elric of Meldebone or Bonet had. One of those things where you read the names all the time when you're younger and you don't ever hear them pronounced. You're never talking to your friends about these characters. Like it's a fused or foist. So there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Elric's sword, Stormbringer, was it basically had a mind of its own, and yeah, it was a it demon was, in sword form or something like that, right? Right. Yeah. And it would steal the souls out of people. It was this great thing. And Elric was basically, uh, he was a albino, and he was very weak most of the time. But when he would get his hands on Stormbringer, and Stormbringer would start sucking the souls out of people, that's when Elric found his strength. And he was very much a great anti-hero, because you're really rooting for him to kill people and get their souls and get the power and everything. He was... he turned a lot of stuff on his head when it came to this character. And that was one of the reasons why he was Elric and Moorcock were so fun because you were rooting for this guy who really in any other novel, he would probably be the villain. Yeah. Yeah. And he had this love hate relationship with Stormbringer. You know, it was like this thing where he, he, he didn't want to have to deal with it, but at the same time he couldn't live without it. Yeah, and it's it's kind of similar to the relationships between Miss Brunner and uh, Jerry Cornelius. And yeah, I mean, if you read the literature and all the comparisons, it's pretty much ascertained that uh, Miss Brunner represents uh, Stormbringer, Cornelius is Elric, uh, his sister Catherine. I forgot the, the name of the sister or the um, the romantic interest in the Elric novels, but it's a similar name to Catherine. So all the comparisons are definitely there. So you might think that Moorcock is just this recycle artist who, you know, can't tell an original story and just keeps going back and recycling himself. I, you could make that argument, 
and I could probably see the validity of it, but really for me, he is playing in this great thing, this thing that he calls, or somebody calls, the multiverse, where we have these echoes of characters from one thing to another. And you can read these stories, for me anyway, when I'm reading them, it's just like, oh, that's a cool connection. I'm never like, oh my god, this is the same thing again and again and again. Because I've read authors where they just recycle themselves like that, and it's like, okay, enough. You know, Clifford Simak, who I like a lot, or Simak, again, I don't know how you pronounce his name, you start to read, you read more than four of his books, and you're just like, okay, I can protect everything that's going to happen in this next one. Whereas with Moorcock, he is such a great storyteller, you never know where it's going to go, but he's playing with these similar elements from one to another. They're very much themes that he's playing upon. Moorcock is one of the great mindfuckers of literature. Yeah. And, and that's his intention. That's why I put him on, you know, in the same league as someone like a Robert Anton Wilson or a Thomas Pynchon. Or if you want to talk to somebody who sort of does what he does, Alan Moore, in the graphic novel world, right? You know, you have to go back to who Michael Moorcock was and where, what his background was in terms of literature. He was the editor of New Worlds. When he came on, he deliberately selected writers that weren't considered your traditional sci-fi writers at the time. He wanted guys that weren't necessarily pigeonholed as sci-fi at all. He wanted poets. He had guys who had ideas. He brought he brought J.G. Ballard to the public's existence, right? And you, if you think about it, if a guy like someone like, um, what's his name, who wrote Fight Club, uh, Chuck Palahniuk, if he was a writer of the 60s, he'd be writing for New Worlds, and Michael Moorcock would be his editor. Stuff like, 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 like Fight Club would be considered sci-fi, much in the same way that Crash or High Rise might be considered sci-fi, even though technically it really isn't. But there's no other way to categorize it. And it's the same way as Michael Moorcock. Yeah, ostensibly he writes these sword and sorcery books featuring a character called Elric. But if you read the books, the gist of it isn't the sword and sorcery part. You know, it's like all these weird ideas. And he's, he does all these postmodern things where he's constantly playing and practical joking the reader. And it's up to you to think ahead and try to, like, just, just, just follow through and try to figure out where he's going with that aspect of it. So there's, there's always a sort of experience through reading his stuff, as is with, with the uh, Jerry Cornelius novels, that you can't just experience his books as a person reading a story. You have to accept the fact that there's, there's more to it than that, that there's a game being played that, that he wants you to play. So if the final program is a TV series, and I think that might be the best way to look at this film... The second episode of it, we've got more of Miss Brunner. We see her, (laughs) this great scene where she's got this lover, this woman there, and a lot of implied cunnilingus going on there, but then the woman just disappears. So there you go with your Stormbringer reference. She is basically absorbed by Miss Brunner. And we think that the original lover of Miss Brunner, this uh, Greek guy, has been absorbed as well, because he's missing through the entire second episode of this film, the second act of the film. You know, she and Jerry go on this little adventure looking for Frank. That's where we have the introduction of uh, Patrick McNee, who's most famously, at least for me, and I know for Rob, known for A Clockwork Orange, and especially for me anyway, his Try the Wine. I feel like I feel bad. I, I, Rob, join a conversation. I feel like we've gone off on a tangent. How is how does it work for you? Because I, I always had the sneaking suspicion that the reason why I might enjoy the movie more than I should is because I can connect the dots because I read the novel. 
even though there's stuff in there that isn't faithful, but there's stuff that is. By having read the novel, it makes it a little easier to kind of follow what's going on there rather than just take it as a, on an episodic basis. I mean, there are aspects of it where it was leaving me with questions that I could only figure out a few minutes after scenes had played out. And For example, the whole like funeral thing in the beginning. I was like, why are all these guys bringing this wood together? Okay, there's this thing, and then there's this fire, and then this guy shows up. It looks like Mark, Mark Boland, and I'm like, what does he have to do with this? And then it was kind of, I didn't figure that out until like after the credits because he said, oh, my father died. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. And then for a while, all the guru scenes, I thought that was him and his father having conversations. I didn't realize that was another guy because I must have either didn't hear that, him explain, or was it explained that this was like some teacher that was teaching him all this Eastern stuff. I thought it was flashbacks of his father because we had the funeral in the beginning. That guru stuff really comes out of fucking nowhere. And it, and it goes say. nowhere. The only thing the guru sets up in this whole movie is that we're coming to the end of an era. And the final program, the titular final program, is going to usher us into that new era. But that's one dot at the beginning, and that's another dot way down the road. And making that connection, pretty tough to do. I will definitely admit that. And that's probably something where reading the book does help. But, yeah, because I know when I saw this the first time when I was younger, couldn't stand it. When I saw it the second time a few months ago, I was like, oh, my God, this movie is pretty darn boring. And my wife was just like, as soon as I turned it off after it was done, she's like, oh, thank God, that movie was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday when I rewatched it, I actually enjoyed it, which was very strange for me to go from one extreme to another. You know, it just kind of gets bogged down. And then the th how I started to watch it was, you know, there's this like cadre of old British guys walking around and trying to hatch this this whole plan in the end. And with the the scene in the lab, I'm like looking at the scene in the lab and I'm going, okay, this is like modern sci-fi of the era, but it's also that, I, for lack of a better term, scientist with the bubbling apparatus sci-fi from the 50s. Because there's all this stuff, and of course there's like, you know, big vats of water that are bubbling in the lab and all that other stuff, you know, because... Oh, and the disembodied brains. And right. right, yeah. So I'm like, this is totally like referencing 50s science fiction. I mean, it's like the brain that wouldn't die or, you know, some movie you'd see in Mystery Science Theater. The um, film also tries to, to like pay homage to a lot of like, you know, like Marx Brothers stuff. You know, like weird stuff that comes out of nowhere, like Baldville, especially with the end. And it's so weird. It's, it's like it's one of those films where you, where you sit there and you go, you know what? I could see how this could work. I can see how how this could be funny. I could see how only because you you see what they want to do, but for some reason I don't know if like the budget held them back or they just wanted to get out the cool things and just leave it at that. I I I just can't figure it out. But there's a lot of stuff there that's really interesting that seems like deliberate tributes or or homages to to other things, but it just kind of feels tone deaf in the way they try to. Uh, Presented. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple one-liners in the film that actually made me laugh out loud, and I just didn't expect it. I've been thinking what to do. I'm going to set your balls to your thighs. <laughs> Who told you I had any? Everyone's got thighs. 
<laughs> well, the stuff that works is the stuff that I would, I would consider like Monty Python esque kind of stuff. Like we talked about the scene when he when he meets Ronald Lacey and they talk about the napalm. And he's like, can you get it for me? Like, how soon can you get it for me? It's like, I can get it for you in a couple of days. It's like, oh, that's that's not that's not going to be too late. Can you get it for me tomorrow? It's like, that's impossible. Why? Because the shops are closed on Sunday. Where it doesn't try. It just delivers the lines and, and stuff like that. And I, I think there's a lot of humor in, in the visuals when they just let the visuals speak for themselves. We haven't touched on at all in this movie the whole use of narcotics, which was... At least in the first act, it's this major thing. You're talking about those point-of-view shots, and Jerry's there driving in his car at one point, point. we get this POV-type shot, and his sister's picture is up in the, in the rear-view mirror, place of the rear-view mirror, and he reaches down for something. There's pills all over the place on, on the passenger side of the vehicle, and then his brother has this whole thing where he's keeping Catherine sedated and talking about his drugs and all the different brains, the parts of the brains that have lit lit up because of these drugs. And then, you know, the way to get information or get the microfilm out of him is to deny him his drugs. But then the movie just kind of drops that after a while. At least that's what I remember. Yeah, that's that's what I meant earlier when I said it's a frustrating film where they'll do things that you think, okay, if you're going to do that, and why don't you go the distance with these other aspects? And they don't, and it's just really weird filming that way. The final program, what it is, and what Rob, you were talking about, is this: the whole finale of the film. And I know that I'm skipping over a lot of the second act, <laughs> and I think that's kind of fair, because I there's really not a whole lot of stuff that happens in the second act in this film, which is really kind of a shame. And I will say the last act of it, I mean, talk about screenwriting structure. This is like, you know, right about 20, 30 minutes here. We have this final act of the film and we know it's the final act of the film. Once we get to this place and it's this whole big exposition train just comes rolling into the station and suddenly becomes this whole thing about this, way to make this messiah and bring in this new age and then in this episode of the adventures of jerry cornelius we have ms brunner and her lover that we saw in the first episode making a special guest appearance in this this particular one and she wants to kill him so that she can use jerry to make this perfect being they're going to take two people smash them together and make this perfect I guess hermaphrodite, I guess it's like a velvet Von Ragnar type thing from uh, Never Too Young to Die. They're going to make this perfect (laughs) beat. Lance, can't you see the greatness in me? I'm female and male, man and woman. I'm better than you are! Going to make this perfect being and... She doesn't want it to be with this Demetrius guy. She wants it to be with Jerry. And this whole gun battle ensues because she's trying to kill Demetrius and all this kind of stuff's going on. Finally, they get their way. And I'm not going to say spoilers because this movie's been out for a long time. So if you haven't seen it yet, you know I hope that you watch it before this podcast because this is going to be a really confusing episode if people haven't seen the film. <laughs> well, the thing is, a lot of people haven't even heard of the film. <laughs> Well, we've given everybody about eight months now to prepare. Some people actually thought when they saw the final program that this was the last show we were ever going to do. Only the Brits did because of the way program is spelled. 
So the final program itself is mashing these two people up together. And for some reason, what comes out of the machine, the big reveal, again with the POV shot at first, is John Finch dressed up like a Cro-Magnon kind of person or a Neanderthal, I'm not sure, coming out and not necessarily having the Ms. Brunner parts. I mean, are we seeing them being this kind of super being? It's definitely not what I thought was going to come out. I thought it would be much more like the Dark Crystal when the Skeksis and the Mystics join up together. And it's well, just, it's like the movie suddenly becomes Altered States. It does become Altered States. Thank you. But this is where it gets into the whole Borch Belt vaudeville thing. Like, he comes out, he looks like the missing link, and he, he delivers this sort of, like, yakka, yakka, yakka line, you know, before he trudges off into, like, you know, the post-nuclear sunset, whatever. Uh, which is not what happens in the novel. So there you go. Do you want to talk about the end of the novel? The end of the novel is... They, they fuse, they do whatever it is that they're going to do in the movie, but, it, but instead of coming out like at a missing link, which doesn't really make any sense if you really think about it, what happens is they become this sort of messianic, hermaphroditic creature that can survive and reproduce on its own all this stuff because the end of the world is happening. And, and that's why this happens, which is far more interesting in my mind far more fucked up if you think about it but what we get at the end of the film is just like really stupid punchline it's almost like whoever was the money man behind this movie they're all you know because they wanted to have their own like kind of like their creative hand in this and they're like well you know if you don't do what i want you know you're not going to get the money to finish this film i want you to put this on at the end of the film because i think it's funny and the kids will love it even though everyone knew it was a stupid joke but you know what we had to put that at the end of the film because if we don't do it, he'll pull out his finances. That's what it feels like to me. I just want to talk. I usually don't do this, but I want to talk about the posters for this film because there are at least three major posters that I've seen on this. The one is for the final program, and that is this um, big, bold, yellow poster where um, the the catchphrase is the end or the beginning. And it's interesting because there's the silhouette of the person on it is kind of um, this asexual being. Really, the left half, or well, the left on the poster, the right half of the person is dressed in this dark suit, and the right half has a high heel on and is dressed all in white. So that's kind of a nice thing, and there's and a that's the shadow. Best poster, actually. Oh yeah, I love that poster. I think it's awesome. And there's a shadow of this person that has a cigarette in its mouth, even though this, the figure itself doesn't have a cigarette. So kind of you know, really playing with this separation and combination, as if this creature that's on the uh, poster is casting a shadow that's different than itself. Awesome. Awesome poster. Really kind of describes it as well. There's another one. Um, so for the American posters, or at least the American title, The Last Days of Man on Earth, there's two of those. And one of them is this like b- beautiful blue poster. It's got these, like, it almost looks like the cover of, I don't know, like a Boston album or something. It's kind of got these... Mm-hmm. Uh, spheres on it they look kind of like raindrops there's all this water and this angelic creature that looks like it's kind of coming out of the water and it's got wings or a cape or something and again it's kind of this asexual creature 
and it's got a couple, um, you know, quotes from um, critics on there, like "superb accomplishment," "wow," or "spectacular and funny," "a true sleeper." That's what Time Magazine said about it. Apparently, great. Okay, that kind of speaks to it a little bit too, because we've got this, you know, asexual being. But I have to say, the most truthful one is this one that has a big circle on it and it's got basically a caveman in the middle of it and it says the future is canceled and this caveman is holding a ray gun though i every time i look at it i keep thinking he's holding a guitar and there's a a big bubble behind him with two women and on the right hand side it's looks like the moon cracking apart and all these the cities on fire and buildings falling down in between so three big circles really and that's the one that i guess they were using to sell it in the united states and really when it comes to that final gag that we're talking about that's the one that speaks to it the most well you see that's the thing i think that's that's fascinating about final program the film came out 73 ish right it was released in britain 73 Tommy came out in 75. Clockwork Orange came out, but then Kubrick pulled it from UK release because of all the threats, right? I just find it amazing that a film that was ostensibly a B-movie, because that's what this was, thought it could sell itself in such a weirdly um, transgressive way, you know, if you think about it, which might have contributed to its failure. But it's it's one thing to have like record albums with a cover like that, and that's considered normal. But how many movies came out at that time that promoted itself in that way? The only thing I can think of is something like Performance, the Nick Rogue film, right? Which, incidentally, Mick Jagger was offered the role, and he thought it was too weird. Jerry, <laughs> you know, the final program. But yeah, I just that's the other thing that like like I find what I find fascinating about the movie, the final program. It's one of those things like what were they thinking making this movie? Did they think this was going to be a hit? Who did they think it was going to resonate with? That kind of thing. And then you talk about the posters that you mentioned. They're not your typical film posters, not even your typical like Grindhouse B-movie type posters. I just think, I just think it's fascinating how they like approached this because there was no real precedent for it beyond like maybe a clockwork orange because stuff like, like, like Ken Russell and, and his weird stuff and Tommy, that, that came out after this. The only other poster that i've really been able to find that was any good when it comes to this is this uh i guess it's an italian one where the movie has been called alpha omega and we've got the needle gun going on in there which is very much on that yellow poster i was talking about but they really drew john finch to be very feminine on it and i have to say that that's probably the closest to what this poster should be, but unfortunately, yeah. It, it, now, you wrote about this movie. Mm-hmm. When you look at who is this movie for and what were the filmmakers thinking, what was kind of your final verdict on this? I think they were going after a sort of countercultural post-hippie thing. I think you do get the sense that as, as much talent you see on display in the set design and direction – you do feel like the people behind are a little out of step, a little out of touch with who they thought they were making it for. You know, you had a bunch of, I mean, they thought they were making it for the crowd that would have been into Head, the Monkees movie. Or maybe they thought they were making it for the crowd that would have been into, I don't know, Easy Rider. 
or, you know, they thought they were making it for the people that would be into the LSD movies uh, produced by Roger Corman at the time. It was something like that. Maybe that's where they thought, oh, this film could be a big success because it has all those, like, ingredients. And the weird thing about the film is, on, on one hand, it seems tone deaf in terms of, like, I think that, like, the supposed audience it was targeting. But the other hand, there's a lot of stuff in there where you're like, wow, a lot of stuff is pretty progressive in its presentation that very few movies were playing with, especially a film that was ostensibly a B-movie, right? A double-feature B-movie. You know, any other film that attempted to do something like this took itself seriously as an art film. The only other film I could would compare it to is something like Performance, the Nick Rogue film. And, and that... It, and it's it never had it never intended to be an exploitation slash B movie you know whatever kind of film. So I, I I think that maybe they thought they were gonna like capture the audience that would go see something like you know Help or Yellow Submarine or you know whatever. I, I don't know. The other thing that I was thinking about is given when it was coming out and the fact that he kind of looks like Mark Bolin, and you guys had already brought up Bowie is the play on the androgyny and all of that stuff that was around in the glitter era in Britain, especially. So that's about the only thing I can think of. Well, it's, it, it, uh, you know, the, the books, what's really interesting, the, the final program was written in like 1965 or something like that. So it was written before any of that stuff, like long before any of that stuff started to set in, which I think is really interesting. Uh, Moorcock couldn't get it published right away. It didn't get published until like 68 or something like that. But I, I, I agree with you. I think it was sort of capitalizing on it. But at the same time, it wasn't something that would be considered commercial, that, that you would like set a whole thing around something that was like a Ziggy Stardust-like character or a David Bowie, Thin White Duke kind of character kind of thing. If they thought that it was targeting anybody, Moorcock talks about one of the biggest issues he had with Fust was Fust thought he was doing a subversive spin on a James Bond adventure. And he kept trying to push the movie in that direction. Okay, we've seen plenty of super spy flicks. I even directed The Avengers, which is a take on the super spy thing. Can we do a super spy thing where, you know, the main spy is more of a hipster guy, you know, kind of right. guy, right? And you see, like, like Jerry Cornelius is the DNA of someone like, you know, Austin Powers, right? And he does have in his DNA someone like Buckaroo Bonsai is Jerry Cornelius without the issues, Basically, you know, he's the rock star. He's a Nobel Prize winning scientist, you know, all that stuff. He's sort of a rock and roll, you know, uh, Jerry Cornelius is sort of like a rock and roll, fucked up, bisexual, drug addicted take on Doc Savage. And I guess that that what Fuse wanted to do was take that and do like a new take on James Bond kind of thing. And I, maybe that's that's why they thought that that would be successful. But but Moorcock just hated that. Because to him, that's not what the books were about. Well, let's go ahead and listen to Michael Moorcock's opinion about the film and about a whole lot more. I was really honored to uh, get the chance to talk to him a few months ago. So the first interview we're going to hear is with Sarah Douglas, who played Catherine Cornelius. The second one's going to be the creator of Jerry Cornelius, Michael Moorcock. And so we're going to play those right after these few brief messages. Do you like listening to audio science fiction? Are you a fan of writers reading their work? My name is Mike Luoma. By day, I play tunes on the radio. The rest of the time, I'm creating science fiction and comic books. And I bring my two worlds together each week with my glow-in-the-dark radio podcast, where I read you my stuff. You hear free science fiction audio adaptations every week. 
And I give away the audio versions after I've podcast them, too. Free science fiction audiobooks on iTunes and at patiobooks.com. I hope you'll check out my Glow in the Dark radio podcast or any of my free science fiction audiobooks at glowinthedarkradio.com. I'm Mike Luoma. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, have you caught up with See Here podcast yet? Here are some of the pearls of wisdom that you can hear on a monthly basis. Here's Tim. How do you get people to take notice anymore, aside from shitting on the floor and rolling around in it and eating it and throwing it at people? How about Wendy? I was thinking about this as I was watching. I was thinking about that documentary about Lee Von Helm. Man, drummers are some crotchety-ass people. <laughs> what does Sticky have to say? Anyway, there was some guy in there, and he was kind of peeking into the window, trying to see what this record that was hanging up in the window was. As I was getting closer and closer to him, I realized it was Robert Plant, and he said, uh, oh, I, I just wanted to check this uh, record out in the window. And I said, oh, sorry, mate, you'll have to come back later when I open it. <laughs> and I'm rather boring. It sort of became a story about a man trying to promote the music that he loves against the backdrop of other people shooting the asses off of each other. You can get the See Here podcast at seehere.podbean.com. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. Or you can find it on iTunes. We discuss music-related films. Green light, red light. We have to go back to the watermelon rapist. <laughs> yes, yes, Virginia, there is a scene. Fatty Boombalad, he's like, hey. She takes the girls the off. ghost pussy. Let's, let's yeah. just add that in there. He <laughs> works for the Noodle House. That's a gag from Young Frankenstein. It you is. know it's just a fucked up movie when you forget about the movie. That's when the cat, like, vomits up blood. Hey, guys, do you think it's possible that this movie is different to whoever's watching it? <laughs> All of this is a much better movie. Where all of your Hollywood dreams... Oh, no, no. Red card. Come to die. Only on the Everyone's Got a Thing podcast network. Everyone'sGotAThing.com How did you decide to get into acting? Well, I'm from... I was born and bred in Stratford-upon-Eden, which, of course, is Shakespeare's town, hometown, and the theater is, is, was very close to my house. My mom was the physiotherapist there at the theater for many, many, many years, and so I was always um, always aware of and attracted to theater actors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and I don't exactly know that I ever said I'm going to be an actress, but I was always going to be an actress. I mean, certainly from uh, the age of about 12, 11 or 12, I was determined, and I got myself into a theatre company at the age of 13, which was a, a very successful theatre company here for, for young people called the National Youth Theatre. Um, Helen Mirren was in uh, a couple of years above me and Alfred Molina, and lots of people came out of the National Youth Theatre. So that was, that was my start. How did you transition into uh, television? Well, that was, that was obviously when I was younger. That was when I was only 13, 14, 15. I was still at school. Um, I then went to drama school, which is what you do, uh, and you certainly did back then. It was uh, obviously the National Youth Theatre was a, a semi-professional. Um, to become a professional actress, you 
have to be, or in those days, had to be in the union. And to be in the actors' union, you had to have done something like 30 weeks in the theatre, and to go into the theatre, you had to be in the union. So it's complete closed shop. It was absolutely ridiculous. But I was doing, I, I, I went off to do my uh, drama school training, which is a three-year course, and by about the beginning of the second year, I, it, I just could, I couldn't settle into it. There was just, there was just no way. I'd already been on the stage all over Europe, and I was probably a little bit more, ma- well, probably a bit too mature for my age. Uh, and I didn't really settle into it. And I had, um, I went back to start my second year of drama school, and decided that it really wasn't going to work for me. And I don't exactly know what happened next, except that I do know that um, I had a very, very dear friend in a, in a gentleman called Patrick Garland, who had recently uh, died, sadly. And he was a, a, has, was a well-known director in England. And um, uh, he introduced me to an agent. And it just happened to be one of the top agents in town. And before you knew it, I mean, literally, before you knew it, um, I, I had my first job, which was in a film, which was the final program. And, of course, uh, you call it something else in America, isn't it? The final program with John Finch, of course. Yeah, the last days of man that, on Earth or something. That, yeah, or something like that. I went straight into film. And this is something that you just didn't do back then. We're talking about the early 70s. I mean, you, you just, you just did, it didn't happen. You went off and you did theater for years. And if you were lucky, you got a bit of telly. I was very fortunate. I went straight into film. And that kicked off. I mean, I was 21, something like that. It was my first. I had done my very, very first job in the December, which was a commercial, which again was, uh, you know, I mean, I... I got a commercial that was shot in Jamaica, and I had to go to Jamaica for three weeks and lie in the, lie in the sun to get a tan so that I could drink Bacardi um, in, in the photograph, in the, in the filming. Um, and that happened, and then I got back, and then I got the final program, and it, it really did take off from there. I, I didn't really look back, and I didn't do any theater until I, I don't know, about four or five years down the line. I did a, a, a West End show, which closed very, very quickly. But I, I went straight. To, I was absolutely one of the few that in those days, um, I had no theater background at all. So what was that experience like for you on the final program? It was, without doubt, um, I wasn't remotely prepared for it um, in that you know, you, you, when I say I, I've been, I've done a lot of theater work, early theater work as a kid, a teenager, and then I'd had drama school where we really, the last thing that anybody talked about was, was movie acting or, or, or sound stages or anything. And I think it's very different now. I think everybody's, you know, everybody's geared up for it now. But back then, you just, it just didn't really happen like that. So I can remember as clearly as anything walk, walking through the door, uh, the sound door, because it's very large, obviously a very large um, studio, um, uh, and and walking into this sort of vast cavernous thing, which was pitch dark, and seeing as I started to sort of walk along and fumble my way in the dark over the the props and the different things, seeing in the very 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 furthest corner this this bit of light which we headed towards, and and I remember as the anticipation and the excitement as I realized that that was, that, was, that was my set, that's where I was heading to, and it was going to all be about me any minute now. I mean, I didn't even really have time for nerves. Um, you, you also have to take into account that John Finch was 
a major star in, in those days. And uh, we were all, all us young ladies were without doubt in love with him. I mean, he was just, he was really idolized. And so from my very, very first job ever, first professional job, I was to, to, to die in his arms, which was to me, I mean, just couldn't have been more wonderful. And of course, you know, it was, we, 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 we met, um, and I, I haven't really said much about before. Of course, I, I, I dated him a little bit. I think he, I'm, I'm not sure that he wasn't with somebody else. I have a feeling he'd split up from another actress. But all I know is, is that we, we went out on a couple of dates. And I did this movie, The Final Program, and I went straight from the day that I finished on that, I went straight to do a television job, which was with Dame Edith Evans and Dame Elliot, and a very, very uh, impressive cast. And again, you know, I was a young actress who was wheeling, you know, bouncing off the walls. And it was, we had rehearsal rooms in the King's Road, which was still, although this was the early 70s, it was still the place to be. And the rehearsal rooms were in the King's Road in the in the Chelsea barracks where the soldiers were. They'd taken a room. And I can remember very clearly um, John Finch coming to pick me up after rehearsals in a, in, a, in a convertible car of some description in the King's Road, sitting outside, looking absolutely divine, just like a movie star. And there being a lot of excitement and buzz as I came out of the studio, you know, out of my rehearsal room and jumped in the car and zoomed up the King's Road. I'm afraid just to the puddle of the road, which is where John liked to spend a lot of his time. But, um, you know, they were great days. They were early days, but they were, you know, it was, it was wonderful. And and the final program, I uh, again, it was my first uh, experience of filming. It was my first professional job. Um, and it was science fiction, as we know, and um, I certainly wasn't overly whelmed with sci-fi. Um, back then. I can't say that I am now, but everybody knows that. But I never understand what I'm doing, and I didn't really understand what I was doing there, except that it was just so exciting. You know, it's, I was a young girl. It was, you know, it was my first job. It was very, very exciting. And I was lying in John Finch's arms and getting paid for it as well. So. Would you consider uh, a film like The Brute to be really like your first starring role for you? Yeah, there was no question about um, uh, the decision to, to do that. I mean, I was... I worked sort of steadily away, and it really, 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 my 20s, I, I literally went from one job to the next. I mean, it was a, it was a very, it was a good period, and the, the, the brute came along, and um, I really, uh, I, I remember discussing it with my um, fiancé then, who then later, I later married, but yes, saying to him, Oh, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about this. It's you know, I think there might be a bit of nudity, and I was so scared about the whole thing, and I certainly didn't want, uh, you know, I was very, very shy about things like that. And uh, he said, "You must go to speak to the director about it." And so, I of course went along um, to to Jerry O'Hara, was the director, and um, and my dear friend Julian Holloway was part of the production team, and Albert Finney. I mean, it was a great group of people involved in this. You know, what was considered. When we started it, a serious film. I mean, we were very... Uh, I thought I was doing a serious film. I certainly didn't know that it was sort of going to turn out to be sort of slightly sexed up, and, and, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't what I, I had anticipated it being. But having said that, um, I went to the director and asked him if I, um, 
I got to take my clothes off, and he said, "Oh no, 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 no! You don't, you know, you just, you'll just be in this haystack, and you'll, you know, we might get a glimpse if you throw a bit of leg around and this and that." Well, I have to tell you, when I saw the film, I was horrified. I mean, it looked, it looked much ruder to me than I think I had been standing there with my kit off. You know, I mean, the, the, those those days, the idea of anybody seeing a, a, a breast or anything was just too terrible and I think they managed to get a quick glimpse of it but that's the sum total of my my uh, my uh, nudity on film I think that's I think that's it and it was very fleeting very fleeting and I get my boots on as well which is another good thing so yeah you don't know what you'll step on in that haystack well the haystack was something else I mean it was quite a, quite a quite a, a, a quite an experience um, but you know it was a, it was a very Good piece of film for me. I mean, it was, as I said, at the time, I don't ever know. I don't know where 84 out of 90 minutes came out, and perhaps that's not exactly the the timing. But I know that it was a very big chunk for me, and it also got, you know, I got to play a young mother. I got to play a glamorous model. I got to play a beat. You know, it was, it was a very good range of, of 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 acting for me. In fact, you know, I've never really had since then. I've never really had so much to do in anything. I would have loved to get that opportunity all over again. You know, but hey, we 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 take what we can now. What was it like playing one of the most notable villains in cinema, Ursa in Superman and Superman Two? Once I had accepted that, that 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 is part of who I am, it's taken me many many years because I really I really did, didn't um, understand the enormity of, uh, of uh, you know the, of the impact of Ursa. I mean, it took me many years to really. I used to get a little bit fed up because all they wanted to do was talk about that and. And then I, um, then I was invited to speak to uh, out in Hollywood, Los Angeles, where I lived for about twenty odd years, and still spend a lot of time. I was invited to speak to some uh, film folk and um, uh, about my career and about different things. And you know, as I worked on this piece, which I'd never done before, and it, everything kept coming back to to Superman, and it was before Superman, after Superman, what happened, and I really started to to to, to understand the, the the impact and and now i've sort of embraced it you know now i don't mind it i talk about it i i i use it i can honestly say at the time i was very oblivious to the, i mean i certainly had no idea that there were men falling over themselves for me i mean i used to do my day at work and i used to go back to my take my wig off and take my boots off and go home to my little garden, well, garden flat is a basement flat in, in an area of London called Shepherd's Bush and uh, cook my uh, uh, future husband his supper. And, you know, I just, I, I had no idea of, 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 of the impact of Ursa. And, of course, here we are 30-some-odd years later and we're still talking about it and I'm still sending up autographs and I'm still, you know, it's fantastic. It's, it's wonderful to be connected to something um, that, that has such a, well, it's such a legacy, and I think this year, uh, when was it, March, I was in, uh, I went to Anaheim, and I uh, I wasn't overly sure that I could be bothered to go, which is a terrible thing to say to the to the uh, Anaheim Convention, um, uh, Comic-Con, but most of the Superman cast, all that could, were going to gather there, and um, I'm so glad that I did, because I got together, which sometimes happens, but, you know, with, with Margot Kidder and with... Dear Valerie Perrine and Mark McClure and uh, Jack O'Halloran and you know we, we we were all there. Ilya Sulkin, the producer, turned up and um, the outpouring, which 
which is always there from the fans of, of absolute love and, and, and just genuine warmth that comes from, from the fans uh, because you've been involved with Superman. It's, it's pretty heady stuff, you know. It's, if you're having a bad day, you just, you just go along and meet some of the Superman fans. And it's great, even though I was a bad guy, they still seem to like me. And the stories they tell me, my goodness me, as I said, I, I was about ready to get married. I was totally oblivious. Um, uh, it was it was a role that I was playing, and I it went on for so long. It was so many months of filming, and then we had a break, and then we came back. But again, uh, at 27 years old, which I was when I started it, to be working with Marlon Brando, I mean, was... In fact, he's, he was my idol, you know. Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman, I mean, I was just, uh, it, it was an extraordinary experience. And then, of course, all the other fabulous people that, that came on board. I mean, obviously, Christopher Reed, but we were all young people together, talking about the Ned Bates and, you know, the older actors, Trevor Howard, you know, different people were coming on and doing a day here and a day there. It was great. It was a wonderful experience. Wonderful. Do you film for a while? You took a break, you yeah. came back? Yeah. Because I've heard different stories as far as Superman 1 and 2 being shot back-to-back or not. So it sounds like there was a break in between there. No, the thing was, we went we went in knowing that we were shooting two movies together. I mean, there was no question about that. We were doing Superman 1 and Superman 2. So we went in for the first few months, and I, I believe I worked for about nine months, or eight and a half months, nine months. Um, and, and we were working on both movies, but what my knowledge of it is what transpired was that we were shooting so much of Superman 2 in those early days and they weren't getting enough of Superman 1 shot just because of the, I guess, just because of the way it's all been planned out, that we stopped with 2. We stopped and sort of went on hiatus uh, for, for, for a few months and I had what's called a pay-or-play contract to come back and complete the little bit of filming. I'd... I'd Done my obviously done my uh, stuff with Brando. We'd all done that right at the beginning, but um, I was to come back, and then and then and then we didn't. So I, nothing lovelier than to be paid for not coming back. Um, it was then another few months, and we went back. And in that interim, um, the big fallout with uh, Donna and, and and the Sorkins, who were the producers, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, that was all happening. So when I got back to it. Um, we had a new director, and we reshot some of the scenes. So, you know, I, I was, as a young actress, it was a very, uh, for me, it was fortunate. Of course, it wasn't fortunate for, for, for Donna or anything, but, and, and to, to, to experience, you know, shooting the same scene twice with two completely, totally, utterly different directors was a wonderful experience for me. That was experience. What was that relationship like with you and Jack O'Halloran and Terrence Stamp? Because the three of you were together in almost every scene. It was the best. Jack and I still, in fact, I was in contact with him yesterday. We, we were very close and have remained. He always, always looked out for me and looked after me. And uh, I have to tell you, if uh, one's ever in a spot of bother, it's very nice to know I have to call on Jack and he'll be there to sort it out for me. He is, he is definitely my protector in life, and uh, I, I absolutely adore him. Um, Terence, of course, um, hadn't, Terry Stamp hadn't been seen when we started Superman. He hadn't been seen for, I don't know how many years, so now I can't remember how many years it was, but he was out of the business. He'd been, he was in India, living in India, and he came back to do meetings with a remarkable man, uh, one film, and 
Superman. So I met this man that I had idolized as a, as a young woman. Um, and certainly my early, early days, I mean, to, to, we were just talking about him the other day, actually, far from the madding crowd. I said, there's nothing to compare with him on that horse and the red stripe down his leg. I mean, he was just the, the, the hottest, sexiest man on earth to every woman in England. And to find myself each morning standing next to him was, without doubt, the most exciting thing that's ever happened. And will we'll, we'll continue to be uh, one of the, the great great memories because he was quite wicked and wonderful and he set me up and there was an occasion when we were filming down I guess it, I guess we were filming when I was blowing the helicopter out of the sky we were down on I think it was called Chobham Common it was out in the, the wilds of, of, of England we were filming this sequence and we were our uh, trailers were parked next to what transpired to be some very wealthy um gentleman, uh, Arab gentleman uh, had, had bought a big estate and there was a high wall and some wonderful fruit trees and Terry sent me over the wall <laughs> to get some, what we call apple scrumping, to steal some, some apples to get some apples off the tree because there was nobody there and he had me fill my boots with the apples and then of course you know, trying to get me back over the wall but you know, I, he, he could tell me to do anything, I mean I just was putty in his hands and of course he was very, the, the, initially, the first few months, he was terribly quiet and very much, uh, I think it's fair to say, into his meditation and his mint tea and everything else. And he was the one that really and truly created this, he created it. But I remember right at the beginning him talking to us and telling us and telling me specifically that we are, he said, we're from, you know, we're from another planet we look the same as them, but we are from another planet, so we must find a way to, to, to be different. And, and it was at his suggestion that we should walk in unison and walk with the fluidity which we got so that, that we walked as a, as a whole, the three of us, you know. Um, and I'm, as I'm talking to you now, my hands are all over the place as I'm gesticulating and I'm describing the scene. I'm very fidgety, and the one thing that I have to compliment myself on is when I look at that movie I think how the hell did I stay so so still because it, it really was you know there was a stillness about um, all three characters um, and Terry was the one that set that pace but he also was has a wonderful sense of humor and often at the beginning of a take just as we were about you know, they're about to say action he would start to tell me some story because he, he had stories of you know, he shared a flat with Michael Caine for many years. I mean, he was the epitome of the 60s, you know, singing 60s. And he had lots of tales to tell me of all sorts of very glamorous, gorgeous people that he'd been out with. And he'd start to, he would always do this. Just before take, he'd say, did I ever tell you about the night that I took Julie Christie back to my house? And we, then they'd go, action, and I'm going, what? And, and he, he did this all the while because I was, I was, you know, I was a young kid and I just, I just loved it. I, I loved, I loved the whole I loved it, and and Hackman as well was was couldn't have been kinder and sweeter to me. And I mean, the difference for me was that all the Americans had come over to London. They were all on location as such. They were all getting per diem, so they were making a nice little chunk of money. Plus, they were getting money to live in. I was I was the English girl. Um, I was going back to my house at night time, and so. I didn't hang out with everybody in the way that they all hung out together, you know, Christopher and Margot, and they all had a terrific bonding with Richard Donner because because I think 
aside from the fact that everybody adored Richard, uh, Dick Donner, it, it, they also, because they were on location, um, you know, you, you, you spend time, you're not with your family necessarily, or you haven't got to go down to the local store. You, it's a different feeling. Um, uh, so I got to go home, and I got to go home and do the laundry, and then I would come back to work the next day. So, so I didn't have that um, terrific affinity with, with, with Donna the, the way they did. You know, I just went home and, you know, I, I had a few fabulous nights out with them. But, uh, you know, on the whole, I was, I was sort of slightly apart from them. I wonder if that might have helped out with your character, though, as far as not being part of that group. Yes, I, 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 think, I think that it probably did. And, and Terence was the same. I mean, because he was very, you know, he was going back to having a, I don't know what he did in the evenings, but sitting cross-legged somewhere chanting, probably back then. I mean, he was very, very, very spiritual. Um, when he came back to the next lot of filming, he'd loosened up a little bit. We used to tease him a bit. But, you know, he still wore sort of a certain, I think it was orange, and he still had sort of certain uh, speed things around his neck. You know, he was still very much in his Indian uh, mode. Um, Jack was just a wild man, but the stories of him are, you know, are, are famous, and I would let him tell the stories because he tells them a lot better. Um, but yes, I think it, it probably did help. I mean, there was a, there is no question about the fact that um, by the time I put all my makeup on and, and, and the wig on and put my long hair up and put the boots on, I was definitely um, in a different, a different place. You know, I, I found it, I found it very easy to be that bad. But I mean, as we sometimes see the odd photograph appears that I managed to, to get hold of and, and tweet and put on Facebook. You know, there are moments where you could see me just having a little, a little naughty smile here and then because there was a lot of nonsense on the set. I have to tell you, oh, you can imagine. It was great. I loved it. Was there any danger of you becoming typecast as a villainess? Because I know that the next few roles that you were in, V and Conan the Destroyer, you were pretty darn evil in those as well. Well, I think, you know, the thing of it is I I um I spent two years after Superman not turning down work. I mean, uh, or 18 months turning down because everything that came my way was was to play the villain, and this was in England. I mean, there was no, there was no question about it. I just, uh, that's, you know, in England back then, and I say back then because I do think it's different now. You, we had a, we had quite a different approach to, to things then, and you certainly, um, on the whole, you didn't. You know, the last thing you wanted to be was typecast, uh, uh, and so I didn't capitalise on Ursula. One little bit. I didn't have my hair cut short. I kept my hair long. I looked very much the English sort of, you know, English girl. I can hardly say I was an English rose, but I mean, it's. Um, I wasn't recognisable as the character, and after about eighteen months uh, of of no work coming, my I mean, work was coming in all the time, but I was saying no because we didn't want me to play the villain. I then went off to the states. I gave it three months, and. Um, in that, at that point, I was offered um, just one episode of, of Falcon Crest, which, of course, in 82, 83, was one of the prime soaps on television. And um, it seemed somewhat foolishly of me, or naively, I think the word is. I, I didn't realize um, that, that... I mean, I should have realized quite actually quite early on because uh, what they were up to, because... Of, um, the first thing that ever happened was they said, well, we're going to dress you in um, leather or suede and, and you'll be the first 
character on primetime television who is dressed this way. And that was because of my, the variety had, had, my caption was, you know, they talked about the leather-clad dominatrix. Well, of course, I wasn't, I wasn't wearing leather. I was wearing organza or actually some sort of parachute type fabric and uh, PVC. But, hey, you know, I'm, I was very happy to be the leather-clad dominatrix. But Falcon Crest put me in leather and suede, and then their publicity machine started to, to whip into action. And, of course, uh, having arrived in America just for three months, I got one episode, and then at the end of that episode, they said, do you want to do a second one? And I did a second one. And then the next thing was I was there for the whole year. Then they offered me a year's contract. Um, in the first year, I was able to do V, the miniseries, and Conan as well, uh, because I wasn't committed, uh, I wasn't contracted to Falcon Crest. So um, uh, V, when they came around and talked about me doing going into the uh, series of V, I had just done the miniseries, um, I don't even really remember there being a big discussion about it, but I do know that my Hollywood agent said, no, 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 you want to stay. You've been offered a season, offered a contract with Falcon Crest, much better um, for your image and to get you out there, uh, you know, on a primetime soap, which I understand, except, of course, I played the bad girl. So at that stage, I realized, and that's why really I just got very fed up. I, I, I came off the show after two, the second year, uh, I didn't want to continue because all I was doing was playing the bad girl. However, however, I, I soon realized that, you know, in Hollywood, it's never a bad idea. Um, I tried really, really hard to do other work. But by the time, you know, I, I'd done V, which obviously, you know, was bad girl, but, the, the, you know, then Conan and things started. I was doing quite a lot of telly, but it... it <laughs> I didn't realize that that's, that's how people saw me. And, and I didn't absolutely embrace it because I don't see myself as a bad girl. I see myself, I find it very easy to play the bad girl. What I am is a naughty girl, and I always have been. And I've always got myself into a lot of trouble but got away with it because I got the gift of the gap, you know, like at school or whatever else. But I quickly realized that, you know, I, I'd had that two-year gap uh, back in England or 18-month gap where I barely did any work. I mean, I did bits of telly and stuff, but I, instead of capitalizing on Superman, which I think if we brought it up to date now, if I was doing it now, I would, you know, well, I'd probably have rushed to America and be in a big hit new TV show, and I would have strut around Hollywood in, you know, silent black leather boots and cropped hair. I mean, I, I think we would, you know, one is much more of a commodity nowadays, and, a, and a pro I'm, I am a product of that, that sort of Superman area. I think we would have capitalized on that um and so consequently people say whatever happened I said, well, nothing really happened i was you know i i jogged along quite quite nicely but the truth of it is is that yes you know i it i i, I became the sort of go-to bad girl but it's not a bad thing you know it's not it's not terrible it's it's been all right um when you mentioned the brutal syndrome earlier i you know i longed i longed to do some real acting um, and I pray to God before I'm too past it, um, I'll get the opportunity to do that. And I'm not overly whelmed with science fiction. And I, I know that I've, a lot of the work I've done, I've done because I'm English and because I sound like I know what I'm talking about. And I never, 
have a clue. I just don't get it. I didn't understand Stargate to this day. I don't know what the hell I was doing in Stargate. And the fans get very upset with me. I say, I just don't get it. I don't understand about holes and time warps and time traveler. I just don't get it. I don't get it. I'd rather be in the garden. But hey. How did you come to be in Solar Babies? Solar Babies, again, was... um, um, Mel Brooks, I knew, and he was producing it. He was involved in it, and that, that was sort of the, the, the connection. I had got to know Mel Brooks in London when I was doing Superman, or rather he asked to get to know me, which was, you know, back in those days, I thought it was perfectly normal for us all, you know, everybody to sort of hang out together. And since I got older, I've realized how very lucky I was. Um, I, and so I think that, although he's an executive producer, I think that's how it... I mean, that just, I, I think that's just how it started. I think that was the, you know, I was obviously suggested. I mean, it was a damn sight easier to work back then because the offers would come in. So, um, you know, and I was, let's face it, solo babies. I mean, it's, A, it was a damn good location because I absolutely adore Spain. And there's another movie that, uh, you know, I mean, I know I got my fingernails burnt, uh, one of those lovely scenes, but it was all the young actors, Everybody was under 21, all of the group of young actors. And, of course, the joy for me as the older, the older group is Spain. Um, you can't, they were all arriving from California and finding, of course, the alcohol free, flowing very freely. And I remember on the set, you know, at lunchtime, there'd be a bottle of wine. And, you know, it's quite, quite normal to have wine with your lunch at lunch. I, I, not that I could have done it. But the kids were just. I mean, they were all in seventh heaven. They were also 17, 18-year-olds, and they couldn't believe it. Um, and so everybody was whizzing around on those roller skates. It was a wonder, actually, we got any work done. But it was great fun. It was, Solar Babies was just, I mean, it, it, it should have done a lot better, I think. It should have done a lot better, but it was great fun. Um, and I loved being in, uh, we were in Madrid shooting. And, of course, Madrid, nothing opens until 10 o'clock at night. So I remember as actors, we really suffered because we had very early morning calls and, and, you know, one wanted to eat at about 6 o'clock in the evening or 7 o'clock and there was never anywhere open because Madrid is a very, very late city. But we made the most of it. And, you know, I love, I love location work. I always enjoy myself. So it was a great place to be. Great. You spent so much time on screen with Richard Jordan. What was he like to work with? He was a gentleman. He was lovely. I liked him enormously. I, I was, I was sorry to say we'd see we, we had lost him. He was a delight. He got quite a presence about him. You know, I, I, I usually managed to have fun, thank God, on the set and, and with my leading men. And I remember him with, with sort of great affection. I, I remember, I remember them all actually. And Jamie Gertz, who was lovely. It was, it was a good, it was a good movie. It was a, it was a good time. In fact, I was somewhere in the depths of an area of England called Cornwall in a tiny little village about three years ago. And I stopped with my mother and was going down for our vacation in a tiny tea room. And a gentleman came in and was sitting at the next table. And then after a while, he went across and we started chatting. And then he said, I know you. And I thought, I said, I know you. And it was the costume designer, Bob Ringwood, who had, had gone on to do he was costume designer on Solar Babies and he'd gone on to do some fabulous stuff and be nominated for Oscars and stuff and somehow he at a very early age I think he hadn't been well and he'd retired down to this little village in Cornwall and you know the, you could tell the rest of this, this the rest of this shop of this restaurant just stopped talking as they listened to he and I remembering some of our nights in Madrid or which were quite 
entertaining to say the least because but uh, yes it's amazing isn't it I mean, all those years later you, you bump into people but yeah Sony Vegas was good I must take another look at it now you've been in dozens and dozens of things over the years and some of them are, are readily available some of them may have been you know washed away by the sands of time unfortunately the way that movies work these days yeah. what are some of the ones that you really are proud over that you would want to point people to to check out well, that's an interesting question. I don't. Uh, it's silly. I I I really want to show that I can do a little bit of real acting, and I did a tiny little student film, which was called Changing Directions, which was shot in Sweden, and um, they asked me to do it, and I was delighted because it meant I could come home from LA and come and visit England, and then go over to Sweden, and it was a it was a half hour short film which was set in the 60s. Um, and again, uh, it meant that I actually got to, to play a real character, not not a futuristic, you know, not, not, a, not an evil queen. Uh, it, it was, you know, it felt, it felt like I was doing some real acting. And um, the same went for, 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 for Dali. I'm not overly proud of, of the film, uh, in that the dubbing was horrendous, and and we shot in we shot it in Spain and Bulgaria, and the the director was Spanish and didn't speak English, and we shot that and he didn't understand the Bulgarians and blah 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 blah. However, the life of Salvador Dali, I played his wife Gala. You know, real when I get a chance to do a bit of acting, that's that's what I'm proudest of, and I don't kind of get that chance too often. I I'm very happy with obviously with Superman. I loved doing Conan, but it's you know in all of these roles I'm doing what I do best, which is you know tall, evil, wicked queen. Uh, you know standing regally, um, looking mean, delivering my lines, which I do quite well and quite eloquently. Um, but it's not really. It's not as you know. I. I I, I want to. I would love to do more. I'd love to do more character acting. So any time I get a little job where I'm doing some characters, something to get my teeth into, that's that's really what I'm proud of. And this little film, that little film, I loved. I loved. I loved the people that time forgot. I just. I. I. I just loved it with Doug McClure because there was an innocence to it and. You know, again, we were up against the odds because we were in the Canary Islands and we were on a volcanic mountain with, you know, difficult terrain. And and we were working with cardboard cutouts of dinosaurs, you know, and it took... And that's... I was very, very proud of that. I loved that because I remember we flew off to the Canaries and we got there and the director arrived and, and, and there was... You know, we also... There's a dinosaur and they could only afford to bring the tail. So we had the tail of the dinosaur and then we had... You know, a guy standing at the very far end saying, well, now I'm the head of it. You know, this was all before the fancy, you know, blue screen and all the stuff they can do. You know, there was a, there was a great innocence to it. And I think when you can act your way through that and you're looking at a cardboard monster where the, 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 the prop man has just been in with a pot of a green slime and sloshed it around the nostrils of the cardboard monster to make it look as if it's, you know, it's, it's, got of a runny nose or something and you can act to that that's that's i'm proud of those moments you know i'm i'm most proud of those but um i'm still i'm still i'm waiting i'm waiting for that i'm waiting for that role where i can actually show show my worth uh i'm thrilled and delighted and i'm very flattered by people's attention and 
but I don't really feel I've done that much. I mean, I've done a lot of work. You know, I don't, I don't feel like my potential has been particularly fulfilled. But, you know, little by little, by little I get the odd little moment here and there. I, I, I think that I, I would like to say that there will be an opportunity and, you know, and it'll come. And it won't be in a sci-fi film, I don't think. Hey, hey, it might be. I shouldn't say that, should I? But, you know, I, there, is, there is a slight... And I, I wouldn't say I'm dissatisfied with it. I mean, I got more acting in in Falcon Crest than the beginning. You know, it's actually... I want to get my teeth into something. You know, that's what I want to do. And I have to study up a script and, and really get to know. That's why I like Dali... When I did Salvador Dali, um, the Dali film, I actually had to or I wanted to learn about his wife, Dala, read about her, do a little bit of research and stuff. Um, so so there, you know, that's, that's what I'm, that's probably the, the answer to you is that I'm, I am happy with a lot of the work that I've done. I have yet to have a role that I can really say um, this is it. I think if Changing Directions had gone to a full-length feature, uh, it, it was such a delightful film about the day that, Sweden went from driving on one side of the road to the other. Overnight, they changed their driving direction, and it caused complete chaos. Uh, it was just a lovely little tender story, and I got to do a little bit of acting. You know, I, I just loved it, and I want more of that. Please put it out there. Now, I know you're doing a lot of conventions. You're doing a lot of voiceover work, mm-hmm. and you do have such a delightful voice. Thank I, you. I really liked the work that you did on the, what was it, the Brighton Omicon? Oh, yes, Brighton Omicon, isn't it? Yeah, it was so much fun. I know, and there was, they were promised that, they promised that there was going to be more. Um, and at the time of it, the, they, they, when they came through to my voiceover agent, my voiceover agent said, you don't, do, you don't really want to do this. This is nothing. And I said, oh, yes, I do. And I, I'm delighted that I did because I got to know uh, Neil Gardner, who has Labbrook Productions, and it was his sort of setup, and I've done a lot of work for him. And uh, it, it's, you, funnily enough, it was there. I um, I was doing an audio, and I ran in. You this was a few years ago to David Warner once again, and I I did a film, Quest of the Delta Dawn, I think it was called, with with David Warner quite a few years ago, and David Warner was my idol at Stratford Theatre. I mean, I grew up watching him and really idolizing him as one of our finest Shakespearean actors. So to find myself working with him in this funny film up in San Francisco was one thing, but then I found him in this audio booth doing, you know, just knocking off a little job. And I said, God, well, you know, what are you doing? He said, well, we're all, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with doing this, you know, and just churn them out. And, and he said, we all have to pay our mortgages and stuff. And I can remember thinking, you're absolutely right. This is brilliant. You know, I would rather be going in and doing a little a bit of voice work on something because, believe me, my voice work in America and my voice work here, America is much more exciting for me because I do a lot of animated uh, uh, work there. Here in London, um, where I'm at at the moment, in fact, I just did a job this week, which is a, you know, it was a commercial, which is fine, but I, it, I, I, I don't, I don't get. As many, I don't, well, I haven't done any animated jobs here. They've all come out of, uh, out of America. Uh, but I'm taking leaf out of David's book. You know, anything that comes along, you grab it. You just keep going and you do it. And something, hopefully, I'll, I'll when I was back in L.A. Uh, this year, and I'll be back again soon, the, I, I was, my voiceover agent said, you don't understand. They're all wanting voices from Downton Abbey. He said, you know, you're over in England and you should be here. And I said, I know, but... Needs must. I have to be here at the moment uh, in England. 
Um, but I enjoy my voiceover work. I love it when I work with a, with a group of actors and, uh, you know, when we're doing, whether it be a Doctor Who or whatever, and we're all in the, the sound booths together. It's great fun. Um, I, I really enjoy it. And the conventions are something that I've... Um, I've only just started doing the old one in England, actually, because, I, you know, in America, I will always go off because it's a good excuse for me. I love traveling around America. Um, here in England, I'm, I, I'm going to go off um, shortly. Uh, I've got a couple coming up. And it really is. One day I woke up and I think, it's not so bad, you know. I'm sitting there for a day with all these lovely people coming up and telling me that they love me. And it's not a bad way to spend a Saturday. It really isn't. You know, in the beginning, when I was the very... Early, early, early days, and I, I just, I didn't really want to do them, and I didn't do them too often. And then I, like, uh, like a lot of other people, suddenly realised that it's, it's, it, it, it is quite lucrative. It is okay to sell your, you know, to sell your autograph. It's okay to sell your photograph because back in, um, back in the day, and it still happens. If people write into me and they write to my, to my niece, and she. She, you know, they write and say, could they have a photograph? She will do it, and she'll bring the photograph, and I will sign it, just like I had when I was a kid and wrote to people. You know, you can still get your photograph. You send your stamp, you know, postage, we'll send you a photograph. But otherwise, all of those pictures that I used to send and give away, when they started appearing on eBay and people were selling them, that was the point. I thought, well, you know what? They're going to sell them and get 40 bucks for something I've just given them, you know. I, it's okay for me to do it, and so I've I've kind of come around to realizing that it's it, that it's all right. I'm not totally comfortable with it, but I'm I'm all right with it because everybody's doing it, and it is really and truly. I mean, it's as I said, this thing in, in Anaheim this year, this Comic Con, it was just it was just such a wonderful thing, and these people have got these stories, and and they they're so thrilled to meet you, and I'm I'm really sort of often incredibly humbled by the. The miles that people travel to come and see you, and, and the, you know, it's 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 terrific. I mean, I've got uh, something coming up in a couple of weeks, which I have to tell you is incredibly inconvenient now. And and now I found that trains aren't running, and there's buses, and I'm going to have to drive, and I'm going to have to belt up there, and you, and I'm thinking, oh, because it's it's not, it's turned out I've, I've accepted, and so of course I'll go, but it's turned out to be a difficult weekend for me in lots of reasons. But we do it. And you go, and then for a few hours, it's it's really, really uh, a good feeling, and it and it makes it all worthwhile. And so, you know, I'm happy to do them. And now they're not considered, you know, people used to, people used to be really rude about them before, but now of course it's it's become quite a business, as you know. Um, so I'm fine. I'm fine, and I'm I'm very excited. I'm going up to Manchester at the end of October with my very, very, very old friend called Toria Price, who's Dad was Vincent Price, and she and I are going together and uh, uh, to go up to Manchester to to meet some of the horror uh, fans. Uh, she's she's wrote me into that because I've I've said well I haven't really done any horror. She said oh yes you have, and I I realised that I have. But uh, she and I are working on something together to do with the, the business. I mean I'm I'm working on a project which is good, and um, you know it's it's. They're not a bad thing to do, and I think it also gets you out there because those fans that come and see you will definitely make the effort to to watch you on the telly. And you know, I, I just did a telly a couple of weeks ago, and you know, it's, it'll come up, and people will make a point of seeing it because you because hopefully they had a nice five minutes with you at some convention somewhere along the line. So I think it all I think it all does feeds into each other. It's all good for all of us. You're really active on social media. 
Well, you know why I'm active on social media? Well, I'm only active on Twitter. I mean, Instagram, my Instagram, I love and have always done all my life taking photographs. So they're not selfies. I'm afraid they're more of fields and fruit and flowers and sea and water. Um, I love and always have taken photographs. Everybody knows I have thousands and millions of photographs. Um, so I've, I've enjoyed that. But in the, the real Twitter, I absolutely, I was told about, I have fought it and fought it and fought it because I'm of the generation that would I want to do that? No, thank you very much. I'm of the generation that you don't share your, you know, you keep very private. You have a little bit of distance between you and your fans. And then my friend came over from LA. This was about three years ago. And uh, he works for, he, he's, he's very involved. He's working on Star Wars now, and he's one of the Spielberg people. And well, he was back then, and he was working for Spielberg. And he said, you know, Stephen always checks the Twitter account of actresses that come in. And I said, no. He said, oh, absolutely. And I had never thought about it. But, of course, <laughs> I realized, of course, you get two actresses alongside each other auditioning for the same role, I can see the, the, the I can see how the scales can tip if that one actress has a million followers and the other one has you know a hundred. It's it's supposedly now common practice along a lot of directors and producers will check to see what the um you know to check sex check to see the following and the interest because it's it's ready made isn't it? It's ready made publicity. It's an audience. It's everything else. So I thought okay, I will bite the bullet. And um, so, so, so I do. I, I try to, I try to tweet. Although I've got, I've got other friends who are very sensible and say very good political things or fight for the rights of this and that. And I'm afraid all I do is waffle on. But I, I enjoy it, and I love interaction with fans. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I had one of the best evenings. I Superman was on telly, and I, I, I never watch it. But I was with a family, and they came on as and was passing by, and one of my nephews had on Twitter, somebody had made a remark, so I got onto Twitter, and it was just great, because I was answering all the questions, and everybody was screaming at me, and, you know, and tweet, tweeting to me, and this and that, and what's going to happen next, and so I'm, I, I'm by no means, um, I'm not obsessed with Twitter, I, I do it more for, I do it more because, and Facebook, I have somebody run that for me, and I totally enjoy what he does, so there's a little team of them, I think they're great, but um, I don't, I don't, I, I will, they'll come up with an idea and I'll do it. And I'm just amazed because I'm not working that much and I don't work that much at the moment. And I'm just amazed that they go on finding stuff to talk about and fans keep coming. And, you know, hopefully soon I'll have something to reward them with, you know, something, you know. I, I have this new film that's uh, Displacement that uh, we just, I think, it will go on the circuit in the beginning of the year. Um, and I'm hoping to be back in LA in November, hopefully for screening of it. And again, I'm not, I'm by no means doing a great deal in it. And I'm certainly, uh, you know, I'm playing a, I'm playing a, I wouldn't actually say I was good in it, but uh, I'm playing a good, a good doctor. It seems like I get a lot of scientists or doctors or shrinks now, a lot of, uh, a lot of therapists I'm getting, but they've usually got a sting in their tails. So, and this is an, another sci-fi thing, and it's about quantum physics, and I just, I just couldn't understand it. I mean, I know I struggled along with it, but I played it, and I had a nice little character in that, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so, you know, more sci-fi, more sci-fi, but it's okay, not complaining.
Well, Ms. Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate this. Well, it's very sweet of you, and, and I appreciate it, and I'm glad you got hold of me. I always get very um, uh, slightly mortified when I see people uh, that, that obviously haven't managed to find me. I can't imagine why you couldn't find me, because I thought I was just about the easiest person. But you did find me in the end, so the system works, didn't it? This is kind of a silly question, but I was curious, how did you get into writing? Oh, I've always been a writer. I mean, I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing. I started doing little magazines when I was 10, but I used to do, I, I mean, I, I actually got by at school mostly on, on essays and stuff like that. I was pretty terrible at school, except for, I suppose, what you'd call creative stuff. Which means it's uh, it's a very peculiar brain, actually. It's one that can't seem to take in very much, but but seems to spout out an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely the word prolific goes along with your name pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of writers a lot more a lot more prolific than I am. I mean, people like Edgar Wallace, and I don't know. Um, I mean, there's a lot of them. I'm I'm actually relatively low low down as a as a um as a prolific writer i'm sort of semi semi prolific on the prolific spectrum you're down towards the one yeah i don't really count much when it comes to uh, the really prolific guys i know one of your first gigs when you were in your 20s was um editing new worlds magazine the word i always read when i read about new worlds is controversial what was controversial about it I was never entirely sure. It was the other people, you know, who who objected to it. So I, I thought we were just running a perfectly good magazine, um, but but every so often people would complain either about the sex or occasionally about blasphemy. There wasn't a, there wasn't I wouldn't have thought an excessive amount of either, but um, I, uh, that was really what was going on. I mean, it really, essentially, we were just part of what you would call the you know the 60s the 60s cultural thing you know whatever was going on in the 60s and so we we shared a lot of uh we had a lot in common with with the underground press of the day uh, things like IT which was international times Oz, and so on and and they all got into trouble at some point you know the courts seemed to be or whoever was in you know, whoever prosecuted such things seem to be keen on prosecuting so everybody got a bit of prosecution every so often you know and <laughs> and and it and very rarely was anybody sent to jail or anything like that but but uh, you know it was just um it's just what went on you know that uh, i think this exactly the same things were going on in the states it was just one culture in a sense trying to stop another culture from from uh, from doing its thing uh, you know the old uh, "no good will come of this" sort of thing, and and that was really all it was. I mean, I, I, I we we ran a we ran a, a serial by Norman Spinrad called Bud Jack Baron, which had a lot of uh, what you might call demotic language in it. I mean, it was you know it it used lang uh, language which uh, 
until relatively recently, had been banned from the English-speaking world. You know, the same thing was going on with, um, oh, God, Evergreen Review, you know, the Lady Chatterley thing, all of that stuff. Um, it was really just, just that testing point when, uh, when we were establishing new, new parameters, I suppose, what you could say, you know. I, I guess the character for me that kind of embodies that swinging 60s, or at least the what I have in my head as far as London in the 60s, is Jerry Cornelius. Is that a pretty fair assessment? Well, yes. I mean, he, 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 he was conceived in the 60s, and he was, I suppose, in that sense, of the 60s. Though I really didn't, um, you know, I've, I've been using him ever since then, and, and uh, he doesn't seem to date much in terms of, of what I was trying to do. Uh, it's it's a bit. I don't want to get too complicated about it, but but it was really the Jerry Cornelius stories were as much a technique as they were about a character. Um, it was a it was a modular technique, largely in which you used you actually created different modules in of of fiction, which could be if you liked, moved around in any you know to put them in any way you liked to create a different narrative. What you get there is is a lot of narratives, a lot of at least potentially a lot of narratives. The reader does some of the work um, if they want to; they don't have to. And it's it's a way of, act, of, of producing what I think of as a genuine non-linear narrative. Uh, that is, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff that's been that's been uh, sort of cyclical, or um, you know, you can shuffle it about in chapters a bit and stuff like that. But I, but I never thought that was that was that was very very. Much, I thought it was still vaguely linear. Um, so Cornelius was 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 an attempt to produce an, a, a non-linear narrative, and a, and a way of responding to what I thought of as as hot material in that at that time. You know, when it first started, the Vietnam War, of course, was one of the one of the main issues, and to deal with immediate material pretty much as it happened the way you would do a news story but it's it but it would be fiction i mean it's 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 real fiction um so so and cornelius himself wasn't really i didn't perceive him as the kind of hipster that a lot of people seem to see him as which is partly why at, at the end of the first quartet i made it very clear that you know this was this guy was not a hipster you know he's basically a a young man fantasizing about about the world so all the sort of cool stuff about him was was really his his imagining what he wanted to be rather than what he was um but but the essential the essential reason for creating him was to find a way of dealing with what i called hot material i mean in in a in a in a cool way you know in a detached way or, or at least a way that was just took a step back from that material, but not very far back from it. It's uh, it's a bit complicated because I was, you know, <laughs> I was never particularly coherent about it. I knew what I wanted to do, but I but um, I I didn't have very much um, schooling, and I'd no, I'd never actually had any academic. I, knew, I didn't know anything um, except what I'd read, um, so I had no no theoretical or at least very very coherent theore theoretical view of the thing it was the the new world's policy was was to you know to run it up the flagpole and see who shoots at it 
that was really our, our, our entire policy <laughs> to try it out, you know, see, see what, see what people thought. Now you're not the only person that wrote Jerry Cornelius stories. How did you kind of open it up and allow other people to use your character? Well, again, it happened completely naturally um, through New Worlds. Um, one of the editors of New Worlds at the time was a guy called Jim Salis. Jim Jim's now better known as a as a um, a mystery writer, a sort of avant-garde mystery writer. Jim just you know Jim liked the. Uh, like what I was doing and he said well you know what if I do one I said sure do one and then a guy called Mike Harrison uh, who writes them John Harrison um, he had a, he wanted to do a, a story too and it just sort of snowballed like that it, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a conscious experiment it just came about with um, you know as I say, it snowballed one writer, then another writer, then another writer. I made it what, whatever you call that, you know, um, a, a character accessible to anybody who wanted to use him, partly because I was, uh, well, m- mostly because I thought they were going to use the technique more than they were going to use the character. Um, Harrison said that, that, that Cornelius was as much a, as much a technique as he was a character, and I think that's true. I was I was somewhat disappointed by the way people used him. They they mostly used him as a as what I didn't want to use him as, which was as this sort of flash modern James Bond character. I was parodying that in you know in the character, and and certainly, what what started happening was I was getting people coming up to my front door dressed as they imagined Jerry would dress and say, "Hey, you know, here I am. What do you think?" And it was, getting, it was getting a bit crazy, so so after a while, I I I sort of stopped encouraging people to to use him. I mean, people still can if they want to, but I I don't feel as enthusiastic about it as I did because for me, it was well, as a group experiment. It it didn't really work particularly well. Were there any interpretations of him that you particularly liked, or just yeah. oh, none yeah. of them kind of hit? Yes, um, Harrison was 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 by far the best. I mean, I say that, and I'm probably you know speaking <laughs> being heard by people who've written one, but I but um, Harrison just had the really understood what it what it was initially that you know that it, that it had that it was a modular a modular That's technique. Um, yeah, because he understood it to be a modular technique and could use that technique very well. So yeah, I was very pleased with what he did, and his work tended to influence mine too. Um, Silas and I had a lot of talks about the about the the character and and uh, ways of doing things. But I think in a way he had a different, as as was proven with his with his later books, which are very good. Um, a different, in the end, a different idea of you know of, of what he wanted to do. So his Cornelius stories were really entirely Salis stories and didn't have didn't make much use of that technique. I was always very happy when he would kind of show up in other people's work a little bit, you know, like in uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or your uh, Doctor Who, the the Terrafile story. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, you know, Alan and I are very very much on the same page, I think, um, with the kind of things that we want to do. Um, so I was, you know, I was always happy to see to see him turn up in uh, in an Alan Moore story. <laughs> the final program first came out in '68, but then it came out again in '69. Was I had read that it was cut when it was first put out in '68? No, it, it, I I wrote it in '65, and I couldn't get it published. Everybody thought it was too far out. I mean, you wouldn't 
nobody would think that now, I don't think, but they did then. The publishers were, you know, very, very, very wary of it. Um, so it wasn't published until 68. Um, I forget where. It was, it was 68 in, in, uh, in England and 69 in America or the other way around. I'm not sure. But the American edition um, was, was uh, let's say, modified. I wouldn't go as far as to say it was censored. But uh, it was it was quite quite heavily edited by by whoever the editor was. I never did find out. I mean, the copy editor, not not you know, not not the commissioning editor. Um, but after that, uh, the the editor of the time at uh, what was then Avon Books, um, who really liked the the uh, you know what I was doing, he was very apologetic of what had happened. It had been a copy editing thing. Not not you know he he hadn't really realised how heavily the it had been changed, um, so he then commissioned the rest of the books, which, um, which I suppose was was probably to my advantage in the end. Uh, but but the books as they now um, as they now are as they now published as they're currently published are are pretty much as as I wanted them to appear, were faults and all. How quickly after the first book uh, was it optioned for the? For the big screen, um, it couldn't have been very long because it, there were two. There were two versions of it. It must have been a, a, a year or so afterwards um, that uh, I think it was Sandy Lieberson bought it. Um, they'd previously been part of the team that had done uh, performance, and I think they were looking, maybe looking for something else. You know, maybe maybe was as as strange as performance. And when they bought it, they offered the part to Mick Jagger. You know, they, they saw it as a part that, that Jagger could play. But Jagger turned it down because he thought the character was too weird. So, um... <laughs> the character in performance was absolutely normal. Yeah, though. absolutely. I agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so, so that's what happened. And, and eventually John Finch, um, who was a friend of mine anyway, I mean, I'd, I'd known him sort of for some years, um was offered the part completely independently of, of any uh, friendship that we had. And I was very pleased because he, you know, he was, he, he'd read a lot of my stuff and I, I knew him well. And, uh, he, he actually brought some good, good things to the part. Unfortunately, the director was absolute crap and, uh, and, and almost all of the good work in the film was ad-libbing, either ad-libbing by the, um, by the actors, or what vestiges of my script was left. Um, I had my name taken off it in the end because because the guy was just uh, you know just didn't really know what he was doing. He didn't get get it at all, um, and again was trying to turn Jerry into some kind of you know hip secret agent. I, sh- it's, I shouldn't really say this, particularly at my age now, but but in in a way the guy was too old for the. Uh, too old for the character. He didn't really know what he had. And he kept trying to bend Jerry back into something that was more conventional, more familiar to him. So it was, it was frustrating in the end, the, the, the movie. I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with movies for a while um, after that because I, I, I just found it completely exhausting. In the chronology of your work, is Jerry Cornelius first and then Elric and then... No, Corum and okay. Um, Elric was first. I I I I was asked to do Elric um, by an editor of a magazine, uh, a, a science fan, a magazine called Science Fantasy in in England. Um, he was just feeling nostalgic for 
um, what I don't think was even called sword and sorcery then, because I think I remember when it was, when the name was created, there was a debate in a in a fanzine between me, Fritz Leiber, and somebody else, one other one other writer. We're wondering what to call this stuff, you know, that we were writing, and uh, I came up with heroic fantasy, which I thought was a, a, more, a sort of nice, dignified name, and uh, Fritz came up with Sword and Sorcery, which is probably more, more, more uh, a better description of it. Ted Carnell, the editor of the magazine, just, just was just saying, you know, I'd like a story like those that used to appear in Weird Tales, um, sort of supernatural adventure story, like Conan. And uh, eventually I, I, uh, I decided I wanted, I, I wanted to do something, but I wanted to do something as different from Conan or, or Tolkien or any of the other, you know, the stuff that was around at the time. There wasn't a huge amount. Um, and uh, I suppose really because of my age and, you know, the, the period I was living in, I, I just created this very angsty, um, what you might call angry young man, or you know, sort of James Deany sort of character. Um, not 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 with any reference to any particular um, character, but but uh, that was the mood in which Elric was conceived. I would say, um, you know, that that sort of beginning of the um, of, of, of that kind of antihero. That was definitely the book that taught me the word sardonic. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I probably, I, I, if, so, if somebody owned that word, I'd probably own them millions by now. That and uh, there's, a, there's another word I overuse an awful lot. <laughs> I can't can't remember it now. I should, but I, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of sardonic going on in Elric. Now, what has Elric's relationship with Hollywood been like over the years? For a long time. Various um, directors and producers would try to buy him. The first person who actually optioned Jerry Cornelius was Sam Shepard. Um, after he'd done uh, Zabriskie Point, um, whenever that was, I mean, I can't remember when Zabriskie Point came out, but it, it, it was soon after, it was around the same time as the book. And, uh, and Sam got his uh, uh, producer to, to, to option. Um, final program, but nothing came of it, um, probably because the Brisky Point wasn't exactly a commercial success. And uh, then um, various people would try to buy it. And to be honest, I was, I suppose, wary of, 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 of the of people who tried to buy Elric um, after that. Sorry, I, if Sam tried to buy the final program. I, I was, I'm getting mixed up. On pretty much almost every year, somebody would try to buy Elric. But I couldn't see at the time that that uh, the story would be could be told um, with any degree of success because in those days effects movies the effects pretty much drove the movie you know um, and it wasn't really until Lord of the Rings that um, the effects became as it were um, adjunct to the to the to the story. Um, so after that, um, the Whites Brothers approached me to to do it, and I was I was much more. Well, I liked the Whites Brothers for a start. Uh, we got on very well. Um, they knew the character very well, and um, by that time, I think the first Lord of the Rings story had come out. 
um, movie had come out, and uh, I could see that you could now tell tell a story with just with the effects you needed when you needed them. You know where they would where they could advance the story. They, rather than rather than be a sort of pause in which there was an effect scene, usually by Ray Harryhausen, uh, and uh, you know, and then the story would continue for a bit. Then there'd be another effect scene, that that sort of thing. Um, and uh, so I, I was I was pretty um, confident that that uh, you know the story, the Elric story, could be told could be told in a you know in a decent way. But unfortunately, um, the uh, Various various things happened to delay it. Um, largely, I think it was the lawyers who uh, couldn't understand that Elric was one of um, a group of characters called the Eternal Champion, and they were trying to sort of decide, you know, what what characters should be in the in the in the contracts. And I kept pointing out that they couldn't have this character or that character. You know, they could only have these characters. And it just went on forever. They just couldn't get it until I finally said, well, it's like, you know, trying to buy Superman and getting Batman free. <laughs> and and at that point, they, they sort of they began, I think, to dimly to, to get, get an idea of where, where they were with it. And we finally did work out a contract, but it was so long after Chris had originally wanted to shoot it that he'd done, um, he'd done the Philip Pullman movie, um, The Golden Compass, in the meantime. And although he still wants to do it, I think probably he's, you know, he's... Uh, his eagerness to do a, a fantasy film of that kind probably isn't as great as it was. The option ran out with Universal, and now there's um, there's another option with uh, with a production company, who uh, again we've only just signed that contract, so there's been no no progress that I know at least on on uh, you know on the making of it. Now Elric is one of your characters. It's also crossed over into comic books. What is that? kind of transition been like over the years i've always enjoyed it i mean i've been very lucky in that i've had a lot of a lot of very good artists you know they seem to be attracted to the character and so i've you know i've had some superb versions of elric in in comic book form um p craig russell um first one actually was a french guy called philippe Drouet, who i think is probably fairly well known to to comics fans at least in in the states um, a very strange artist, um, almost the Lovecraft of, uh, of, uh, of comic book artists. And he did a version in, I think it was 1964, uh, which appeared in a, in a French magazine. And uh, I'm, in fact, currently working with, with French guys now producing the, the latest Elric comic, which... Uh, which is I don't know if you've seen it, but it's very very good. It's a it's a it's a superb comic book, um, done as a you know as a as a as a as a band is in a um, you know um, in hardback. Um, I think in four parts. Yeah, I've been collecting those as they've been coming out, and they do look gorgeous. Yeah, they're, and they're, they're great guys. I mean, it's um, very very talented guys. You know, one of my favorite characters of yours is Corum. Has he ever been? talked about being adapted in other media well he was actually by mike mignola and um i think in the 80s um there's a very good series um first comics in out of chicago who were a very ambitious comics company 
and for a while they they uh, they launched a lot of you know now well-known artists and and uh, characters but uh, they 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 really got in a way too um, too ambitious for the market of the time and finally went under but but they did a, a very a beautiful Coram series by Mike which um, is going to be reprinted um, by Titan Titan of doing a a huge I think that they, they what they're hoping to do is is reprint every every adult comic that I've ever been involved in so they're they're planning to do all the Elrics um, the Corum that that Mike did um, uh, a couple of Hawk moons and so on um, they, they, they I think there's something like 15 20 volumes altogether of, of uh, they're calling it <laughs> something ambitious. Um, I think it's called the Michael Moorcock Library or something of that, or collection. You know, one of those, one of those names. And they're they're putting them all out. They're, they're they've just just started to put out the P. Craig Russells, and they're they're um, they're also doing the tight the um the the what the French ones, the new French ones, but not in that same series. Pretty much everything that I've done. Um, Howard Chaykin's Eternal Champion, of course. Um, my really, I think my my favourite, at least living living collaborator, um, Walter Simonson, who I who I really like working with a lot. It's funny that Magnola did Quorum because I really got a Michael Moorcock vibe from that second Hellboy film. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, so did I. <laughs> Linda and I went to see it on my birthday. I mean, I'd like the first movie, you know, so much. It was going to be my birthday movie, and. Uh, I was somewhat surprised to see to see um, um, a rather Elricky looking character turning up in that. But uh, Mike says he was surprised to see it too. So there you go. Good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah. But I'm sorry <laughs> that it had to be on your birthday. Well, yeah. I mean, um, and Linda's more angry about it than I am. I was just sort of, I was you know, what what we call in England gobsmacked. I just sort of sat there with my mouth open, thinking, "This is familiar." <laughs> Luckily, I'm not Harlan Ellison, so I didn't immediately take out a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> in a full-page ad in the New York yes, Times. Yeah, right. <laughs> Speaking of movies, how did you get involved with The Land That Time Forgot? Oh, it, that was... I, I was the only writer that Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated would allow to write it. They they, they saw the outline that the movie company... Um, God, I've forgotten the name of the company. But anyway, the, the company... Um, that wanted to do it was an English company that had done horror pictures over here in uh, up until no it wasn't hammer it was it was a breakaway from hammer as i understood it i think it was people who had originally been with hammer but were you know were doing their own there were there were several companies like that in england at the time who'd started out with hammer you know the guys had found that ham, the hammer formula was successful and so they you know they tried to do something similar um, so they were going to do that with Edgar Rice Burroughs, and I think Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated wanted to stop them <laughs> doing, you know, doing a, a bad, another bad Bur- Burroughs um, uh, movie. So um, m- my friend Jim Cawthorn, who's an artist, and, and we were both, I'd, I'd, um, I'd done a Burroughs fanzine when I was a teenager, which is how I'd got my first uh, professional editing job, and um, but through this, I'd, um, I'd used Jim Cawthorn a lot, and we'd, we'd become very, very good friends. So Jim did did a breakdown of the um, Land of Fi- Time Forgot, the first part of it, 
and I wrote the script from mostly from Jim's breakdown. The reason I like that particular Burroughs, Burroughs idea is that it was actually an interesting sort of science fiction idea, which, which Burroughs didn't have very often. I mean, his stuff was usually you know, great on adventure, but not particularly good on, on, uh, on underlying idea. And uh, so I, I, you know, I agreed to write it. I also thought I'd write it because I'd, I'd had such a bad experience with the final program that I really wanted to learn how to write scripts myself, you know, you know rather than have some, somebody else mess up my story. I could mess it up myself. And uh, um, so, I, so, so I took the job on for that reason as well. And I had pretty much carte blanche. It was, it was wonderful because we were allowed to write a Burroughs story pretty much exactly as he'd written it. We shortened some of the, the long, there were some very long scenes on board the submarine, which weren't, you know, which weren't particularly good for movies. So we got rid of that, but, but we, we kept to the story pretty much exactly. And, uh, um, and I, and I also agreed to write it as long as there wasn't an explosion, you know, a series of explosions at the end, you know, as long as there weren't any volcanoes going off at the end, which they always seemed to do in those days. It seemed to be, you know, the standard ending. Oh, there's a volcano going off, and even though there's no volcano mentioned anywhere until then. Um, and I said, if I, you know, as long as there wasn't a volcano going off at the end, so we could have the, the proper ending, which was a very good ending, I thought, as well, a rather lyrical ending. Um, and they said, sure, no volcanoes. And then one day I was out at the set and I was looking down at these, these big, they were like oil drums full of oatmeal. And I said, what, you know, what are they? And they said, oh, that's for, for when, uh, when the volcano goes off, um, <laughs> there's going to be, um, you know, guys are going to be sucked down by the lava and oatmeal makes very good lava. So, so, um, you know, in the end I didn't, uh, I didn't. I didn't get get what I'd asked for, um, and and they cut back a lot on the on the actual idea of the movie and concentrated on the action. But I thought it was still a fairly good for its day, a fairly good ad adaptation of Burroughs, even if they did have fixed wing pterodactyls uh, flying around. We've talked a lot about uh, movies, books, comic books, but how did you get involved with mu music and with Hawkwind? Uh, well, I've been in. I, I, I'm really, you know, I really am just a child of my time. I, I was, I was doing um, what we called in England, England skiffle, um, which was the sort of precursor of the British rock and roll, whatever it was, invasion, um, revival, whatever. So I was, I was in skiffle groups from the age of fourteen, um, uh, playing guitar, and gradually that that morphed into doing uh, rock and roll and I, I i was i was in rock and roll bands from from the age of 17 onwards and so when uh, i actually had to choose between between writing and and uh, and music and writing was actually slightly more comfortable than doing music because you know we um, when you're in a, well, you know, it's like in a small band, you're usually in a, also in a very small van going for hundreds of miles to do a very small gig. Um, and, uh, and the discomfort was, 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 uh, was a factor in deciding that I'd rather stay at home and write. Um, but then when, uh, during the, the sixties and seventies, um, the rock and roll scene and the science fiction scene, or at least 
the new world scene rather than the science fiction scene in general um, were very close together in England. For some reason, you know, kids who like rock and roll also like science fiction. It was just the way it was. And uh, so a lot of rock and roll people liked, liked my work, and, of course, I liked their work. And it just naturally came about. I mean, I, 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 could, you know, I could go to a gig pretty much anywhere and there'd be somebody saying, you know, I really like your work, man, and I'd be saying the same to them, you know. So, so eventually it was pretty natural that, that Hawkwind and I should come together. Uh, initially, I was sort of friends with the band. And then one day, you know, they asked me would I do some, some, uh, some material and I, I said, sure. And the guy who usually did, did, uh, was their sort of front guy, a guy called Bob Calvert, was um, a little unstable. He's dead now, poor guy, but he was, he was somewhat unstable and would go into loony bins from time to time. Um, sorry, mental health facilities from time to time. Um, I forget I'm talking to an American audience. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're so sensitive about stuff like yeah, that. It's, it's, well, you know, I, I, live, I do live in America half the time, and I know what political correctness is. is. Um, um, but anyway, I, you know, we, we, um, so he, he, would, he would go off to, um, you know, to, to, uh, to get well again. And... Uh, and he was worried that I would take over his job because the the, the guys were asking me to perform it to perform the material I was doing as well as uh, as well as write it. And I, so what I did is I said to him, "Look, this isn't my career. You know, my career is a writer. Um, I'm just doing this while you're away. And um, I promise you, you know, every time you you come back out of the." Uh, mental health facility, um, you will be, you know, your job will still be open for you. And so whenever, whenever Bob came back from, uh, from, from wherever he'd been, and I, I was often involved in helping him get out of there as well, um, he, would, uh, he would take up his old job again. So basically I was, I was really a, a sort of an understudy. Um, most rock and roll bands don't have understudies, but that's what I was. I was sort of Bob Calvert's understudy, and I and I and I worked when he wasn't able to work, and I you know appeared on some albums and stuff like that. And of course, I I I I then because I was working with musicians again, I started uh, wanting to perform my own stuff um, rather than perform with another band, and so I. I I formed a band called The Deep Fix, and we we started doing uh, records after that. I think I've done about I don't know how many. I've done two or three um, albums, and I'm working on another album now in Paris. Um, again, based on on my own books. You have been writing since you were a kid. It sounds like, and you really haven't slowed down at all. How do you keep going after all these years? Well, I, as I, as I said once, it's I think it's simple peasant genes. They're just, you know, I, I just seem to be. My father was the same. You know, my mother was the same. Both very sturdy. Um, you know, they, they they both lived to ripe old ages. I think I, it was that plus my mother despaired. My my father went around. My mother despaired of of my education when I was young, and so knowing that I wanted to be a writer, they eventually sent me to the only place that seemed to them, you know, where I would be able to learn writing skills or at least journalist skills. So I, I went to a, to a, 
um, a college that that taught shorthand and typing as well as other stuff. Obviously, mostly you know preparing young women for um, for a life of drudgery in in whatever office they were in. So I, I was one of about I think at most ten ten boys who were in this school that was otherwise all girls. Um, so it was, it was. I didn't again learn very much because it was far too much of a distraction. But I learned to type very fast, and uh, I always thought it was just sort of sheer energy and uh, and a good and a good typing speed that that uh, you know that got me through all that. Um, nothing, nothing much else, um, except that I've. Um, and my wife reminded me of this the other day. I do tend to. Um, I just had the kind of imagination that's sort of on all the time. I think if I didn't, if you know, if I'd been crazy, I'd I'd have been some kind of lunatic visionary. Think and and uh, so I'd never seen. I used to see a lot of visions as a kid, and uh, all kinds of stuff. And I still do as an adult. Um, and uh, but I never thought they were anything but the product of my own imagination. You know, I never thought, oh my God, you know, I'm seeing. Uh, um, well, Jesus, I actually did see Jesus at one point. I, br- I grew up in a completely secular household, um, so, uh, so it was a rather peculiar thing to see. And I used to see a lot of ghosts as a kid, um, and I never took, I was never scared of them. I never thought of them as anything but my own, you know, my own inventions, something that I was somehow projecting. Um, it's, it's sort of hard to, to, um, you know, to give you a formula for it because... Um, I used to think, for instance, that, that you know everybody could structure a, a book, you know, a, a pretty easily. That, that the structure wasn't difficult, and only to discover as an editor that, of course, a lot of people just don't get structure. They just can't do it. They they haven't got an instinct for it. And I just did have an instinct for it. And I think that's a lot of a thing that helps you a lot. For instance, I, I think musicians are helped if they have that sense. In in uh, you know Mozart's case, he he just he just had an instinct for the, you know, for how to structure. And if you can do that, it saves an enormous amount of time. You, you don't, you know, you're not sitting around wondering what comes next or what has to come next. You sort of know what has to come next and you do it. It's just, you know, it's just, uh, it's just an instinct. Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of, I, I feel I've always felt rather guilty that other people have had to work so hard, you know, to 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 get this stuff, and it comes very easily to me. I have to say, and not, not the, you know, there, there's 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 more ambitious books than the fantasy books, which which have taken me years to write and are very very hard to write, but but as far as just writing goes, I seem to be able to you know put something together pretty easily, as a story. You know. You're very self-deprecating when it comes to your education and just your skills and all this. But I have to say that the eternal champion as a, you know, kind of a lifelong ambition or just a project. I mean, it's so intricate. It's just such a, a an amazing web of worlds being connected and everything. It's just uh, definitely something to be very proud of. Well, it's kind of you. Thanks. You know, again, it just came about naturally um, as, you know, as I, well, I did the first Eternal Champion story when I was 17, but it wasn't until I was about 22 or 3, I think, that I, you know, I began to see the potential for it. Um, and I think, I think, you know, again, I'm not the first author to, 
to come up with that sort of an idea. Um, they're, they're, particularly in France, where, with the things like you know, Balzac and the Comédie Humaine, the older I get, the more I realize how they came to do that, to start writing about the same characters, you know, through book after book, frequently in different situations. Um, and I, I wasn't influenced by them because I, you know, I just about heard of Balzac when I was 17, but I certainly hadn't read him um, or, or Zola, who you know, did the same thing. But um, I, after a while, you start to realize that there, you only have so many characters and rather than call them by different names, you might as well use the same name because when you're when you're using when you're doing that, you're also referring to to other narratives. You're referring to other aspects of of you know of a character, and so it, it's a good model for if you like the sort of infinite, well, you know the infinite. Um, possibilities of every human being or well perhaps not every human being but but an awful lot of human beings most human beings i think do have a tremendous amount of of, of, of potential to be different things in in different circumstances and again this was a way of being able to put the same character in very different circumstances so so you could sort of examine how that character behaved in you know in in different ways just as i mean i'm sure we all do it we wonder how we would behave in you know in in certain often very extreme circumstances you know would we be good guys or would we be bad guys you know how what would we do and we never know until we actually do it so really that's 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 what the form um, what what the method um, offered me, you know, was, was a way of doing that. I had read that there was a documentary being made on you. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, some, some guys in England um, are doing it at the moment. They're coming over, I think, in a, in a, in a few days to, to do me. They haven't done me yet. They've been doing, you know, all my friends and relatives. So I don't know what... what, uh, what what terrible, untrue stories have been told about me, but uh, <laughs> um, they're, they're good guys. Yeah, they're nice guys. I, I met them. A, I met them a couple of years ago when they were doing an, a different movie, and they, 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 you know, they they asked me if I, you know, if, I, if they could do one on me, and I said sure. Yeah, I'm always curious <laughs> to see what happens. You have not never been shy when it comes to your politics and just kind of talking about the state of science fiction or fantasy um, when it comes to you know what's out there in the in the market and whatnot and and even previous writers you know very much a champion of Robert E. Howard and Edgar Rice Burroughs and all these. What do you feel is is the state of the sci-fi fiction community these days? I think pretty terrible, really. Um, I, I don't think if I was going, if I was say seventeen again, I wouldn't. Uh, I doubt whether I would have been interested in writing science fiction. Um, at least, well, as it stands, it, I'm, I'm not saying there aren't good writers out there. There are some very good writers out there. I mean, really, really good writers. Um, it's just that the, the 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 genre as a whole. I think you don't really get many New York Times bestsellers unless they're sufficiently bland to appeal to a sufficiently large number of people. Um, and this is not to knock um, George Martin, who 
who I, you know, I know I've known for many years and who I, who I admire. Um, I think, you know, I think you can get some stuff that, that, that isn't, uh, isn't bland, but, uh, most of it, but the, the more popular a genre becomes, the more predictable it becomes, um, the more comforting it becomes, the less, the less, uh, the less, um, 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 edgy it becomes. And I think, I think that, uh, I've, you know, I've made this, this comparison before with, with, with rock and roll. In, initially, when you went into a studio, um, you really didn't know what you were going to come out with. You know, you weren't entirely sure what was, was going to come out. It could be, you know, somebody like um, uh, Buddy Holly number where somebody, you know, bangs on a cardboard box to get the rhythm because the drummer didn't turn up that day or whatever it is. But you get this this stuff um, not through a great deal of conscious experimentation, but but just doing it because because that's what you have to do, because there aren't any rules. And for me, science fiction and, and um, was attractive because there weren't any rules, because there wasn't anybody looking over your shoulder, because um, it was all was was you know was initially regarded, um, and it means that when you know when you know how a book is is likely to turn out, or a publisher, and this is the worst part, when a publisher knows what sells, then you're in a very, very different situation. The publisher starts to publish increasingly um, safer books that he knows as, you know, they, they know have been, you know, done well before. And you get very much a, a sort of Xerox effect where, where this, you, you, you get the feeling you've read the same book over and over again. I'm not saying you might not get this with my books because I've done so many of them. It might well be the case. I haven't read them myself. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think this is, is, a, is a problem with, with any genre almost, um, that, it, that it runs out of uh, not so much steam as, you know, as edge. You know, it just doesn't have that, that particular quality that certainly that attracted it to me. I like the potential. Um, it also meant early on that uh, science uh, publishers didn't didn't know what was going to sell. Therefore, they couldn't reject a book simply on its lack of commerciality, commercialness. I don't know, whatever, that it wasn't a commercial book. Um, now they can decide on that, and that's a shame because uh, you know, what with more and more publishers becoming more and more cautious of what they publish. It means that, in, at least in mainstream publishing, fewer and fewer um, writers on the on the margins, if you like, who are doing the the re, you know the new interesting work, stand a chance of getting decently paid for, for, for you know for a book. They they usually wind up having to publish it themselves, and that's a shame. Do you think that something like Behold the Man would be publishable today? Well. It would be probably more difficult, um, only because of the you know the rise of the religious right. That's again you know people are so cautious of you know who's going to be offended. Um, uh, you know it, it's always weird in America that people are much more much more um, worried than Europeans about how people you know what people think about them, how people think about them, um, and 
it 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 sort of extends into into entertainment. So you know, people don't want to be disliked, and even if it's a publishing company, you know, they don't want to. It's not that they're going to necessarily make or lose money. They just don't want to be disliked. And so they, they frequently make decisions. It seems to me they frequently make decisions that, that, um, that are based on um, not wanting the flack, you know, just not wanting the, 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 the problem. Um, and so I don't mean that, that, that Behold the Man would not be published today, but I suspect it, it might not be published by a mainstream publisher. It, was, it wasn't originally published as science fiction in England. It was just published as a straight novel and reviewed as a straight novel. Um, so it wasn't until I started, uh, until a lot of the fantasy books started coming out in the, really in the 80s, that... Uh, that, that, no, I suppose in the 70s, sorry, that, 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 uh, that critics started seeing me as a, as a genre writer. It was a very strange thing. I, I, I started out as a, as a writer writing sort of odd books, but not, not with any particular name on them, and gradually sort of became um, co-opted. Again, isn't really quite the word, because I wasn't co-opted. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I grew up in science fiction. But, 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 but co-opted by the, um, you know, by, by the, by, by the genre. And um, it, 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 uh, it was only then that I started getting reviewed as a genre writer. It was, it was a strange, strange sort of backwards, backwards movement. And now in England and France, it's different. I, I don't get, I really, I get sort of reviewed as a, I don't know, somebody on the cusp of, of different, you know, different genres rather than being just, just of one genre. And that, well, I know that wasn't your question, but I, I, I think, I think Behold the Man would, would, um, would be published now, but probably in a different way. You've got a documentary being made about you. You're about to go in and do some more recording. You've got comic books coming out that are based on all your work. What else are you doing? I almost feel bad asking that question, but what else are you up to these days? Um, well, I'm I'm doing uh, I'm doing some more comics actually. I'm, I'm working on 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 comics in France. I'm also doing a a new version of a of a of a of some short stories, a group of short stories I did some years ago, called a, a memoir a memoir of World War Three. Uh, and I've written some new stories, and those are being published here in Paris first. I mean, they'll eventually be published in, in uh, English, I'm sure, but they're being published in French first. And I seem to be doing odd projects like that. There's more than more than most things these days, partly, I suppose, because I'm living in France. They're not comic books, um, but they're, they're sort of heavily illustrated books with um, you know, maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 illustrations in them at least probably more um and uh, that that's fun i like doing i, I particularly you know, i like doing visual stuff anyway and i don't know you know i'm just i'm just knocking about I'm, I'm still doing i still you know i still do quite a bit of criticism i i write for the spectator and uh, the guardian and and uh, you know the british sort of weekly magazines um 
and I enjoy that. I, I, which it gives me a chance to be able to plug a you know a, a good book if I if I if I if I come across one. And speaking of which, I think there was a very good book. Um, and it's I think it's it was it's come out in the states too. Um, it's called the Vore V O R R H. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but the Vore is all I can say. And it's uh, it's by Brian Catling, and it's a fantasy, not. Uh, not a generic fantasy. It's it's more like a, something like Mervyn Peak or somebody like that. You know, it, it doesn't really have any any uh, generic characteristics. But it's a brilliant piece of of fantastic writing. Where it's set set on the edge of this, or initially on the edge of this huge, unending forest. Um, and it's uh, it's certainly one of the best books I've, I've read for for a while. Just to clarify, when you're writing these new works and you're writing the comics, are you writing in French first? Oh no, no, God's sake, no! If I did that, I mean, uh, I, my 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 wife, we were we were going off to um to dinner one night, and my and I said to my wife, um, well, I'll be uh, you know I'll be speaking my usual pigeon French, and uh, and she said I speak pigeon French. I said no, no. I said you speak good simple French. My French sounds like. Uh, you there, pass salt me, please. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the level of my French. <laughs> and I'm ashamed of myself because I've, I've, been, um, I've been coming to France off and, off, off and on since I was 15 years old, so I, I really should be speaking better French than I do. You've got all these things going on. Is there a good place out online to keep up with you? Um, yeah, I would say that um, Moorcock's Miscellany... It's it's the website that um, um, a guy called Barry Sizemore and a bun- bunch of other guys maintain. It's a very elaborate site. It's got pictures and comics and um, all kinds of stuff on it. Um, it's it's uh, it, it's um, and there's a question and answer on it, so anyone can can you know ask me a question and, and I'm always there to answer. I, I, I keep in touch with people all the time that way. Neil Gaiman keeps up a, a, an elaborate web, website too. And I, I think, uh, I think we're, we're, we're pretty much in the same, uh, uh, I don't know, the same tradition in that we believe very strongly in, uh, in as close contact with our readers as we can have. talking about the final program thanks to sarah douglas and michael moorcock for coming on the show to talk about this with us and uh 
I guess you guys are both big fans of this, of the writer. As I said, I have not read any of his books. And uh, I know that Mike is a, a big fan of his. As we said, a great honor to have him on the show. You guys have talked a bit about uh, the Elric books. And I guess there were a time, or there have been a time, when it looked like there was supposed to be a film made of that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, there have been, as far as I know, a couple attempts to make an Elric film. I mean, of course, we talked with uh, <laughs> talked with Mr. Moorcock about uh, the kind of uh, Elric, you want to say homage, maybe, to uh, in the second Hellboy film. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, when I saw that, as soon as that character came on screen... I was like, oh, wow, I don't know if this is an intentional thing. It sure looks intentional, but my God, I think that Guillermo del Toro would be a perfect person to adapt these Moorcock stories to the big screen. Now we can finally do it. I mean, now with, you know, like I can see Stormbringer being a character rather than just a prop. That would be kind of cool. But yeah, I, I bought uh, a book few years ago called law and chaos the the stormbringer animated film project by this woman wendy penny or penny i'm not sure how you pronounce her name i i apologize and she um illustrated this whole thing about the characters that would be in a an animated version of elric and it was gorgeous. I wish that something like that would have come to the screen because this just looked terrific. And it was that kind of, it was like no animation, but just um, like a little bit more refined. And it, it probably would have cost gazillions of dollars to bring this to the screen. It probably would have been best had it been hand animated and everything and just had that delicate touch to it. But yeah, if you guys can get your hands on that book, it is really gorgeous. It is, uh, and it's one of those like, isn't it too bad that this thing never happened? Uh, Chris and Paul White have been talking for a few years, at least since 2007, and I know the la- latest thing I saw was from 2014, where they're talking about doing a um, Elric movie. And I thought for a while, Rocio and Elliot, the guys yeah. that did the. Okay, you heard I've that heard, too. I've heard that I, as well. Yeah. All right. I was feeling crazy because I was looking for that again and yesterday. They're, and I was they're, like, they're hit and miss, but when they're when they hit, they're really good. They wrote a really good screenplay um, on the Sandman, and they wrote a really good screenplay for Travis McGee too. Yeah. And I was hoping that, like a few years ago, after Robert Downey Jr. became huge, he wanted to do a Travis McGee movie. And I was like, okay, I think that that would work. And I was like, hoping that they would use that script. No, it was going to be a different writer. Okay. That's still cool. Let's make sure this happens. No, no. Now it's going to be Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. That's complete miscasting. (laughs) And we dodged a bullet. Okay. Have you seen the Travis McGee movie with uh, Rod Rod, uh, Taylor? I think I prefer the Sam Elliott version Uh of the Travis McGee. Okay. I don't think I've seen that. Neither one of them are good. I I'm sorry to say, sorry Rod, sorry Sam. Anyway, yeah, well, like getting back to Cornelius, I have read the Mobius uh, story uh, contribution to heavy metal called the Airtight Garage, which features Jerry Cornelius as a character. In fact, you can you can Google it online and see the artwork. Uh, it's up there. It's a fairly famous take on it. I think it's one of the more famous 
non-Moorcock written takes of Cornelius. Cornelius isn't even like the main character in the story, but he's an important part of the story. Um, and I've read the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen where uh, Jerry Cornelius makes an appearance as well. But he makes an appearance as his uh, photo uh, negative version of himself that appears hmm. in the second novel. Oh, yeah, Rob, it gets crazy. Like in the second novel, Jerry Cornelius is a photo negative of himself, black skin, white hair. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 the novels get increasingly more bizarre. Well, yeah, there's even the uh, Gold Diggers of 77, which ties the Sex Pistols into the Cor- Cornelius story. So, uh, also, no, also released as the Great Rock and Roll Swindle, not to be confused with the movie Great, Great Rock and Roll S- Swindle. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it gets crazy. And then, did you read or listen to the Coming of the Terrorfiles, the Doctor Who novel? I've not read it, nor did I listen to it. I've only heard about it. Okay. I haven't checked it out either. I want to, though. And then I know there's another, at least one more comic adaptation, but it's not called, he's not called Jerry Cornelius in it, which is another, like, strange thing that you can have these characters. He's an open source type hero, but you can also make reference um, through, you know, other means and not necessarily, you know, call him out as being Jerry Cornelius. It's more of like a, a wink and a nod kind of thing. Right. Well, well, Moorcock would do that as well. Like, he would have Jerry Cornelius appear in different stories, but he wouldn't call him Jerry Cornelius. He would do plays on the words and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, like uh, Lord Jagged of Can- Canaria or, um, uh, well, even even if you look at Corum, because Corum's name is Corum Jalari, I think it is, or Jalarin. It's been a while since I've read it. So it's kind of like a Jerry Cornelius, but backwards. So he was playing with that so much. And then even there are some people who say that the final program is kind of taking uh, the dancers at the end of time by Moorcock and kind of flipping it on its head. So, you know, that whole idea of him playing with these characters and retelling these stories and everything, it, it just makes the world of the multiverse, I won't say confusing, it just makes it to me a much more rich place. Well, the final, I haven't read the final novel. My understanding is the final Cornelius novel the whole thing is that the whole concept of Jerry Cornelius, the multiverse, is all in the head of this kid named Jerry Cornelius. Oh, is he the one that's playing with the snow globe? It's, well, you know, it's kind of like that, actually. It's kind of like the same <laughs> elsewhere ending. It's like, but the whole thing takes place in the same London that Jerry Cornelius lived in. You know, the kid lives in Notting Hill, but it's the real world. You know, Interesting. And he has the same relationship with his mother that the fictional Jerry Cornelius has with, with his sister. But you find out that everything you've read has been the imagination of this kid. But I haven't read it, so I can't really attest to that. That's just what I've heard. We never shy away from incest when it comes to this program. But we definitely didn't talk about the kind of incestuous overtones that Jerry and Catherine have, but I got to say, it's not really played up in the movie nearly as much as it is in the book. Yeah. And the book is not really, uh, subtle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in the movie, it's, it's more, but you know, you get it. I think in the movie, I don't think it's, it's one of those things where you watch. I mean, I, we'd have to ask Rob if he's not familiar with the books. Did you get the sense that there was some incestuous thing going on there between Jerry Cornelius and his sister? Mm, not sure. 
I said it. I I can't really say. I I I thought there was you know weird things going on with the uh, his Werner character in him, but that seemed more like as you said with the James Bond thing, more sort of a toying spy kind of deal that you saw in other films in the sixties. I like how Rob is our final authority on this. It's 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 great. Yeah, I, I mean, I love I love when there are these things where it's just like. Yep, I'm coming in, complete stranger. You know way too much about this, and I'll tell you, yes, this works. No, this doesn't. Probably not a good idea because um, I only know what I know. So it's uh, <laughs> uh, don't don't look to me to be the arbiter on this one. I can only tell you how I relate to the film. Well, it's interesting you brought up the spy thing because this goes back to Fuse having directed the Avengers. There is a bit of a Emma Peel, uh, Mister Steed relationship sometimes with Jerry Cornelius and Miss Brunner. But unlike uh, John Steed and, and Emma Peel, uh, these two consummate their relationship. I want to know, though, Rob, would you recommend this film to anybody? Would you actually watch this one again? What did you think? What was, the, what was your final say on the final program? I think it's a good watch. I think it's an interesting time capsule of an era in British film. Much the way, like we said, um, Clockwork Orange or Liquor Man or something like that. It's like if you want to see sort of what they were doing in that time. Um, I don't necessarily know if it holds up on its own. I think that uh, I think you're right. Instead of being guys who are turned off by the film because you're fans of the book, you actually appear to like this film as opposed to going, ah, I don't want to watch that because it destroyed my books that I like. Yeah, I definitely don't see this as destroying the books. How about you, Eric? No, I don't see it either. I, I've actually have recommended this film to friends, and I've always had surprising reactions to it. Usually it's positive. Uh, I would say that there's, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just out there enough, and there's enough uh, visual imagination on display, and, it, and there's certain things that when it does it well, it really nails it, that I think it's worth watching because of it. I mean, you could do a lot worse. A lot worse, and I would say it's it's, it's the last truly interesting film made by this director. Uh, it just went all downhill for him after this. Yeah, and as this is the only the only really filmic adaptation of Michael Moorcock that you know full length and official <laughs> all these kind of things, not Hellboy two type thing. I mean, I wish that it was a little bit better in that regard. I will have to say it is tough being a Michael Moorcock fan. Because the one thing that we haven't said this whole episode is that when you're in high school and you're reading Michael Moorcock, you're getting a lot of sniggers, man. You're getting the fingers pointed at you reading this dirty book because people don't understand that Moorcock is not some sort of description of what's inside well, of the you, book. You grew up in the wrong era because of, say, you were that age reading it now. You'd be the coolest hipster on the planet, dude. <laughs> Ships would be fawning over you. Every guy would want to be with you because that's that's just where I was going to say that. Um, I just think it's interesting that of all the Moorcock adaptations we got, we got this, which is like the yeah. least film I think anybody wanted to adapt to the big screen, written by Michael Moorcock. I think you want to go to Elric and his adventures before you go to Jerry Cornelius. Like I say, it's like trying to like turn a, a Thomas Pynchon novel into a movie. That's something P.T. Anderson would do, you know, not somebody who wanted to uh, rush out a B movie. So I, I just that's that's one of the things that that just fascinates me about this movie 
and why they made it in the first place. I don't even think it's something someone would want to try to make today. You're like, who would you cast as Jerry Cornelius? Who would direct something like this? You know, I'm still trying to get over the idea that somebody would try to adapt a Thomas Pynchon novel for the big screen. That's just crazy talk, Eric. I know, right? <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> My capsule review of Inherent Vice was um, like Big Lebowski, but not as wacky, but kind of wacky, too. <laughs> I liked like half of Inherent Vice. I thought half of it was really, really good. There were aspects of it. I was like, I don't know why you did that. I don't know why you put that on the film. I don't understand. But it's like, I mean, but that there's an analogy right there. It's like, okay, of all the pinch of novels, you'd think you'd, you'd adapt something like Crying of Lot. What is it? Uh, 6 9? 49. 49, right? Which is his most accessible novel, right? But no, he went for Inherent Vice. Might be his second most accessible novel, I guess. But it's like someone decided, oh, no, I'm going to adapt Gravity's Rainbow. Right. Which has been done. There is a German film which tried to adapt Gravity's Rainbow. Haven't watched it yet. Oh, I had no... I knew there was like a... Wasn't there a miniseries? I thought there was like a BBC miniseries or something like that, which I've been trying to find. You might be right. But but if there's a German version, wow. Oh, I, for one, will say I have a copy of uh, Gravity's Rainbow on on my shelf. I have it there because it's one of those novels which I swear to God, at one time I will finish reading. But it's almost impossible. I have Infinite Jest... Babylon Babies and Atlas Shrugged all on one shelf. And I will probably never touch that shelf for the, the length of the rest of my life. Well, I had no problem with Infinite Jazz. I read that. Gravity's Rainbow is just one of those books where it's like everybody wants to like, you know, conquer it. And it's almost impossible. I don't have a problem with the book itself, but just the length is daunting. It's like it's, it's not even the Everest. It's not even the length. It's one of those books where like you read like something like maybe 60 pages and then you stop and you're like, wait a minute, what the hell did I just read? <laughs> and you have to go back those 60 pages just to reread what you just read to make sure you read what you just read. And then you just like, we're like, wait a minute, holy shit. I just like, it's like reading a novel's worth and there's still like a good 300 pages to go. You know, it's like one of those books and it's like, and you put it down, like I'll get back to it later. I will conquer you. Gravity's rainbow. By God, I will conquer you. But then you go to your comic books or something like that. Yeah, give me something I can read in an afternoon. Exactly. My psychotronic encyclopedia of movies. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Every so often, there comes a movie so sick, so twisted, so incredibly insane, the critics shout, Oscar calling, Oscar calling. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Unending torment. Meet Dr. Caligari. She's chic. She's hip. She's morally reprehensible. She's evil. She's a flat-out sadist. Sex Nazi. How do I make you feel? My feelings are like filthy prayers. I'm a juice dog. I'm a twitching skee-ball. And you won't let me shiver. Enter her asylum where the erotic meets the psychotic. Bon appetit. She's the granddaughter of the infamous Dr. Caligari. To her, your brain's an open house. You've got to learn to just say yes. The critics cheered when Dr. Caligari took the midnight movie circuit by storm. Perhaps I should prescribe a sedative for you. Spectrum News raved over this overnight cult classic. This movie screams art. And MTV went crazy over the Caligari Asylum. Fetching Madeleine Raynal plays the granddaughter of the evil German scientist, and she's got plans to bring him back in a big way. 
Variety called it a twisted, skewed, day-glow visual explosion reflecting a mad world. I got an EKG you can dance to. Everybody limbo. The L.A. Times stamped its approval, consistently outrageous and imaginative. I call it disgusting. The Toronto Festival of Festivals screamed pop expressionism with a 90s feel. You scratch my itch. Dr. Caligari scored three and a half stars from the Seattle Times, who praised it for a winning combination of nightmare and wit. Get a grip. The Arizona State Press gave it an A, and the Toronto Globe and Mail recommended it as sexy, surrealistic, and outrageous. I'm on a radiation vacation, soaking up the gammas. Dan Pearson of the New City described it perfectly as terminally hip. Funny thing about desire, if it's not crude, it's not pure. On college campuses, she's the new homecoming queen. She's got style. She's got class. She's got people talking everywhere. Excitement's the essence of life. When it's over, you're dead. She's racy, irreverent, and radical. Dr. Caligari, the twisted passions of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the all-consuming hunger of eating Raul, and the outrageous excess of pink flamingos. Describe your life in three words or less. She's the surrealistic psychiatrist with the totally camp couch, Dr. Caligari. She's got the cure for midnight madness. Surprise! That's right, we'll be back, or uh, shall I say at least Mike will be. And next week we talk about Dr. Caligari with our special guest co-host, Heather Drain. Meanwhile, I'll be looking for a new messiah with my guru in Anchor Watt. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Eric Cohen, for joining us. Eric, what's the latest with you, sir? Uh, nothing much. We're still going strong with the cinephiles. We're podcasting. Um, uh, fortunately, real life has gotten in the way. I accepted a new full-time job. So until, until I get that, like, wrangled and under control, then we'll start shooting more episodes again. But right now we're just podcasting. Just check us out on thisisinfamous.com. We tend to upload a new podcast every weekend. And, uh, yeah, that's basically it. What kind of stuff can we look forward to over there? Uh, we got something up where, well, generally our, our format of the podcast is different from our video show. It's, it's basically we try to cover the latest news in our own sort of cynical way. And then we, like, review films we've recently seen, even if they're films that we've seen before. If it's something we've seen recently, we talk about it. Uh, because of the TV, with the, with the video version, usually by the time we get together and do stuff, it's usually too late to, like, discuss a recently released film that everyone wants to talk about or something like that. So with the podcast, that gives us the opportunity to be more, more uh, timely, up-to-date, so to speak. So there's that, and then uh, the second half of the program is devoted to some sort of like overall discussion, like the state of the industry, uh, you know, what have you. Our last conversation was about whether or not uh, the abhorrent behavior of a director or, or celebrity could affect your enjoyment of a movie, right? Somebody who, like a Mel Gibson, you know, just completely fell apart being, you know, doing racist stuff and things like that. Can you still enjoy his movies regardless of that fact? So. Yeah, so that's basically it. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I, I think uh, I definitely didn't enjoy War of the Worlds, mostly because of that couch dancing thing that Tom Cruise did. But then I think at the same time, I still wouldn't enjoy War of the Worlds had it even been somebody else in it. We actually brought up Tom Cruise. That's actually the conversation that's going up on uh, this weekend. But we actually brought up Tom Cruise, not because of that, because of all the Scientology stuff 
and like all the news that's coming out about how he's kind of sort of been enabled through that, how, you know, the whole story about how a lot of the Scientologists, you know, the, what they, what they call the C Corp people who are basically treated as slave labor and how they were, you know, without being paid or anything would like rebuild his, uh, motorcycles, re, re interior design his house. And he's like totally aware all this stuff is going on, but he's not speaking out against it or anything like that. And I was like, is that something that would completely turn you off Tom Cruise while he's still going to his movies if that's the case? He's one of many examples. You know, of course, we bring up Polanski because everyone brings up Polanski in situations like that. Woody Allen. Yes. Always a good one. I mean, and we covered a Woody Allen film, but strangely, it's one of our least downloaded episodes because I think people do not like Woody Allen anymore. But, you know, if if it was Michael Jackson, they'd be all over it. Yeah, it's kind of sad. I mean, we also brought up, uh, I forgot the director's name, the guy who directed, uh, uh, he directed those the, the horror film. He was the one oh, that was that, arre- you know, arrested for um, being a pedophile. Right, the guy that directed Powder? Yes. Yeah. And we talk about that. We also talk about what's his name who directed Die Hard, how he was arrested for a lying. John McTiernan. John McTiernan and all that stuff. And it's kind of an interesting concept, discussion because it's it's like okay, you could sit there and take the high road. It's like oh, you should let their work stand, you know, on its own and all that stuff. But I, you know, in the conversation, I found out like yeah, there are certain like filmmakers or actors or stuff like that where there is a certain bias that sits in. And sometimes you're like, okay, well, I'm okay with this one person's work who has had this like background. Well, I'm not okay with this other person. So. It's as much as an examination on our inner selves Ooh. as it is about our, about our opinions and all that stuff. So, Why don't you look deep into yourself? It's, it's, yes. it's Stormbringer, man. I blame it on Stormbringer. Well, thanks again, Eric, for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks to everybody for listening. As always, we encourage you to go over to our website, projection-booth.com, where you can leave us some feedback, link over to our iTunes page, and leave us a review. It's just a little something to help us take over this tasty world.
I'm the cosmic champion And I hold a mystic sign And the whole world's dying And the burden's mine And the black soul keeps on killing Till the end of Likes the secret thoughts you will to make. 
till I'm a hundred tears Here and now they pass through the years
and just remember what you're told. That a weapon in a traitor's hand will harm you twice as bad. Forests of indifference guaranteed to make you mad. And the moon overshadows the sun. And the masters of war carry on. While the fools and the jokers make fun. Ooh, see them run. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.